BBC4 radio series, The New Gurus. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about gurus and pundits. They are not primarily supply-driven. They are primarily demand-driven, meaning if people need reassurance or comfort or expertise in a particular area or they want affirmation of their most strongly held opinions, then they turn to people who will provide that. Right? So... Someone, let's say he's got a long, you know, big following as a conservative pundit, and then he starts taking liberal positions, his following will disappear, right? It's Helen Lewis talks about other people writing about gurus talk about, oh, there are all these gurus with millions of followers, and people just consume everything they put out there. And it's not true. People are selective. People choose that which meets their needs, makes them feel better, comforts them. Uh, buttresses their most strongly held opinions, whether on religion or culture or, or politics. And so when you switch the format of your show, so I used to have a show with a lot of guests and you know a lot of you know very extreme personalities, and it was tremendously compelling and it would get you know good figures two, three, five hundred up to a thousand watching live. But I realized ninety nine percent of the people who wanted to come on the show, it was not good for them and it was not good I think for the wider society that was touched by the show, but for, for many people, it was a self-destructive and frequently an antisocial act of bringing them on the show. So I have paid a, a huge price in terms of the compelling and entertaining nature of the show. So I've got 1% of the audience that I used to have, but I sleep better at night and I'm, not as many people are being harmed. I don't take responsibility for someone coming on my show and acting in a self-destructive or antisocial manner. But I I don't take zero responsibility either. So I I have a choice when when I go forward, you know, what type of topics, how do I want to talk about things, but most importantly, who do I bring on the show? And so I can make, make choices that are better for other people or worse. And so it's a lot like when you're, you're a single man, let's say you're a good looking single man where you have money, influence, power, and so you have access to sex with attractive young women and you can get sex with attractive young women and you can get their consent. But is it really in their long-term best interest? And if you continually engage in activity that is consensual between adults, but you're engaging in activity that is bad for people's long-term self-interest, then how does that leave you feeling, right? I don't think that leaves you feeling good, right? You can engage in consensual 
stuff transactions like i could be a drug dealer i could sell you drugs you could consent to buy the drugs and the drugs could very well have a negative effect on your life and in a strictly libertarian perspective we both consented so what's the big deal and so too with sexual interactions i slept with a lot of women who was equally psychologically damaged as me uh, but were those interactions generally speaking in in those women's best interests uh, sometimes I, I don't think so. Generally speaking, I think most women tend to regret uh, most sex that doesn't lead to marriage. So too with with hosting a live stream and and bringing people on, I was just burdened eventually by the self destructive nature of many of the people who would come on the show. And so, what, what drives viewership primarily is is the the demand side. So that's why there was, for example, an explosion of, of podcasts and live streams about dissident politics, because mainstream politics wouldn't cover the dissident politics in a fair man manner. So all sorts of people in, in dissident arenas got a viewership that was far out of proportion to their talents because there was such an enormous unmet demand. It was similar to when I was writing about the pornography industry. Was I getting 10,000, 20,000 uh, unique visitors a day? when I was writing a blog about the pornography industry due to the transcendence of my prose, due to the clarity of my writing, due to the profundity of my insights. No, I had incre incredibly compelling subject matter and I basically had it to myself. There was, there was no one else who was willing to report on it in a you know, reasonably vigorous manner. And so I had this exciting, compelling subject matter to myself. And so I was able to gain an enormous audience if I had applied the same work ethic and the same talent to any, pretty much any other topic, I would have received between 1% and 5% of the audience. So Tom Wall talked about when he was a young man, he, he got a PhD from Yale in American Studies. And he used to think into the 60s that the most important thing about a piece of writing that made it good or bad or compelling or not compelling was the quality of the writing. And then as he got older, he realized the most important thing about what makes a piece of writing compelling or not is the topic, right? It's the subject that you're writing about. And so he used to think it was like 90% writing talent, 10% subject. And then he switched to acknowledging that it was like 80% the subject matter and uh, about 20% the, the writing talent. And so too with live streaming, all right? You are going to get views largely in proportion to the subject area that you cover and the, the compelling nature of the, say, the, the guests that you, that you bring onto the show. So Richard Spencer was talking with J.F. Garapi, and uh, it's called The Peacock's Tale. And they begin with a discussion of Twitter. On Gab for a year, uh, it's another world. There's much less people, much less engagement, and it's good to be uh, to have a fresh feed that tells me really what's happening in the last hour, rather than having a feed that tells me on Gab uh, what the Christians of America think in the last eight hours, whereas Twitter gives me a picture of what the world thinks in the last 30 minutes. Right. I, so a couple of things. First off, Twitter is, in my estimation, the most important social network. And, yes. and I think other people recognize that as, fa as well. And I might even include YouTube as a social network in this competition, even though Twitter, I believe, has something like 220 million users around the world. So it's so I used to try to have these political discussions on Facebook between 2013 and 2015. And it was Vivian Veritas who let me know, hey, the real, real discussions, 40, they are going on 
on Twitter. And I said, but Twitter, there's like a 120 character limit. How can you have any conversation with a 120 character limit? She said, well, people will screenshot larger points. So it was Vivian Veritas who tipped me off to paying more attention to Twitter. So between 2008, I think when I initially joined Twitter up until late 2015, I didn't pay much attention to Twitter. Vivian Veritas was the one who convinced me to start, start paying more attention. Right, this is uh, Richard talking with Jay. Worked by Facebook, which is well over a billion. It might be even over two or three billion. I, I don't know. And there are other social media platforms like Snapchat that have many more users as well. Um, and uh, Elliot asked, what story got the most hits on your blog? Was it the HIV stories? And I don't remember exactly, but I think it was, it may have been the Jenna Jameson interview where she talks about Joe Montana hitting on her, various celebrities hitting on her, and there were these nefarious allegations made against Jenna Jameson and then Jenna Jameson rebutted them. And so I got an avalanche of viewers. So personality driven topics uh, are particularly compelling, whether you're, you're blogging them or writing them. So the title, the new gurus, that doesn't, that's not nearly as exciting as analyzing Jean-Francois Garrett P a recent discussion with Richard Spencer. So if you hype up the personality element of a story, right? The, the who of the basic journalistic who, what, when, where, why, the who element drives a tremendous amount of uh, traffic. But uh, I, I think Twitter, because of its public face, I mean, I don't know the last time I read a newspaper where someone quoted Facebook or something like that. But it seems like if I read, say, 10 articles in a mainstream newspaper, two or three of them will have an embedded tweet or or reproduce someone's tweet, tweet, tweet. So there's just this kind of like, are you alive? Do you have a heartbeat quality yes. to Twitter that I, I think is really remarkable. And I think other people feel this as well. It's not just a kind of like elite platform for news junkies and journalists or whatever. I, I think it's much bigger than that, actually. But I am it's curious. public ledger. Oh, it is when exactly. you make a public statement, you make it on Twitter. If you make it on Facebook, you're making it to your followers, but that's a specialized thing. And that's where YouTube doesn't have this uh, feeling of public ledger. It's because for YouTube, you need to listen to a whole 20 minutes of someone. And in my case, a whole show of one hour to get to their point. Uh, whereas right. on Twitter, people will compress to fit that character limit, which is the, the genius and the, and the, the disadvantage of Twitter. The, the character limit is what forces people to compress their statement to the essence so that people know where they stand and it will stay there forever the tweet that's a very good point by js so it sure seems like 100 times more people get into trouble for things they write than things that they say on a podcast so people i know got into trouble for things they, they tweeted far more than anything that they said also the compression bit is key so very smart people ask me why don't you make shorter videos right they, they don't want to watch two hour video they don't even want to mess with the timestamps so the the most efficient way to get the most compressed version of people's thought is, is probably through Twitter. It's photographed, screenshot if it's controversial, and there's no getting it away. Yes. So what was it like being on Gab? Because I, I remember being very enthusiastic about Gab in 2017, and I was actually banned from Twitter for about a month in 2017, and it was a big thing. It's kind of forgotten now because I... Uh, so there was an academic who told me, is it worth staying on Gab? Because he, he was interested in, in the far right and he just was getting a much higher amount of, of noise to, to value. And I kept telling him, yeah, it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth it. But uh, he eventually gave up. And yeah, I guess I gave up on, on Gab many years ago. 
you know, knock on wood, I think I'm here to stay. And, and it was just a different time. In the, oh, excuse me, it wasn't 2017. It was the fall of 20 or the fall winter of 2016. Um, but I was very enthusiastic about Gab because I, I kind of felt like, well, at least we'll have something. Like this can almost be a universal platform. You can cross post, but this will never go down. And so on. I, I had, and maybe even it would. And the chat says, how much of a factor did erotic attraction play in your interest in engagement with females such as Vivian Veritas? I'm sure it plays a factor. I mean, it's far more interesting discussing these ideas with with uh, someone who's female and, and young and attractive. So I've been listening to quite a lot of Alex Katush- Katushka's uh, podcast, and most of what she says is just incredibly inane. Her manner of asking questions is ponderous. She she asks questions like to Amy Wax, "How did it make you feel when you know fellow faculty didn't support you?" Uh, but she's young and she's beautiful and she's pleasant to, to listen to. But if she was a guy, I, I you know, don't think she'd have more than 1% of her following. Now, there may be a whole goldmine of, of material and insights that, that she's produced. And maybe the, the few podcasts I've heard her aren't representative, but it sure seems like, generally speaking, when it comes to you know, female commentators in, in the distant right, that, that there's there's a considerable freak show attraction that, that a woman might be interested in these edgy ideas instead of you know, old men being interested in them. I also noticed that in the pornography industry, that uh, if a woman would deign to write a column or an article, essays about the pornography industry or a book, that would get far more interest than if a man did it. So but by a ratio of something like 50 to 1 or 100 to 1. And also, women do genuinely bring something to the table. Like, I think there are significant differences between men and women. And so talking to a woman or listening to a woman, you do often get new perspectives that you wouldn't, you wouldn't otherwise think, think of. Also, listening to someone who's Black or someone who's East Asian, all right, I think uh, you, you do sometimes you know, benefit from that other perspective. You know, outpace Twitter. Who knows? But as the years went on, I didn't use Gab at all. And then uh, seeing the post of Andrew Torba, I found Gab to be just a huge turnoff. And it just seemed to be like a, an echo chamber where you probably are. I don't get why people care that much about Andrew Torba or Elon Musk, right? I, I don't care personally that much about their views. Why would you care if Andrew Torba is a Christian nationalist or Elon Musk is you know, supporting Ron DeSantis? the the platform's the thing isn't it it's the it's the discussion it's the community it's the friends that we make along the way far more than the the owner or the ceo of a platform and his opinions exchanging comments with some guy who's likely to become a mass shooter <laughs> maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's a bit much but you understand my point it's just yeah. there's a kind of like gab became kind of like a movement not just an echo chamber but a kind of weird movement and so torva would say all these wildly contradictory things like we're the ultimate free speech platform and blah 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 and then he'd also be like only christian nationalist allowed you know episcopalians you're gonna get banned you know or something like i mean you know what i mean and in his anti-semitism and and so it just became this kind of like all right i mean i I don't want to hang out with you guys basically yeah 
Well, I, I, I really am respectful of Gab. I appreciated having a home simply for sanity's sake and for the people who wanted to follow me. And they were on Twitter and they were not seeing me anymore. They wanted to have a spot where they can, uh, they can get the same updates about where I'm at and my show and everything. So I really appreciate Gab. And I really think that Gab still has a role. Even if everyone was to be unbanned from Twitter, we must keep Gab because I think we must, uh, we must credit. And I would like to welcome you to this thought because I don't think you've thought about it, but I think you should. Okay. Andrew Tarbach caused through leverage caused the current re-rise of Twitter and the takeover of Elon Musk. Ultimately, if Andrew Tarba is not there with an alternative, uh, it's not the same thing. And it doesn't call for that much. Okay, I, I don't buy this. I don't believe that uh, Andrew Tarba and Gab are responsible for Elon Musk uh, buying Twitter. ...of an intervention with that much money for Twitter. And in a way, having this kind of alternative power in the same way that the existence of Russia kind of makes Western Europe stand together more, the existence of Gab has led to true liberals and free thinkers and freedom lovers to take over Twitter and liberate it. I, I actually agree with a lot of those sentiments. Uh, I, I, I think Truth Social might have played a bigger role or even Parler, but I do think that part of the motivation was to cut off the alternative, which even if it couldn't surpass Twitter, at the very least would take a huge chunk of it away. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. Now, that be, all that being said, with all the respect due to Andrew Torba, it's, a, it's torture to be on Gab, to be just on Gab, because I'm surrounded with people who think way too much like me, who, you know, my kind of humor that I can appreciate would be considered dark humor by normie standard. But on Gab, I'm considered a normie <laughs> because, wow. I want to, because I'm not a proficient user of wood chipper memes and other violent memes. And so uh, you kind of get radicalized in the sense that at this point, after one year of Gab, it takes a really seriously dark joke to make me laugh. <laughs> I, I have become totally unsensitized. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. So on one level, this, this is funny. On a different level, it's not funny if you do become desensitized and then that can't help but play out into your interactions in, in real life. So Twitter, the internet, YouTube, Gab, whatever, they are part of the real world. Whatever you do here it does affect how you talk to your mother, your brother, your sister, your friend, your boss, your employees, the people at church or synagogue. So if you, you know, become desensitized through using Gab or 4chan, that's going to have a negative effect on your interactions with other people and your capability of navigating the world. It seems to me just from my, my firsthand experience, most people who get red pilled end up at a social disadvantage that their lives get worse. <laughs> and it shouldn't be that way. If you're getting red pilled in the sense that you're understanding reality more clearly, your life should improve. You should make more money. Your relationship should improve. Social life should improve. You should be able to navigate life more effectively. But what seems to happen when a lot of people get red-pilled is that they then can't help but talk about things that are the kiss of social death. And so their life gets worse. Uh, I, I feel that. I think there was definitely on, on Twitter in 2016. I don't, I don't think this exactly has returned, but there, there was just a, an intoxicating insanity to Twitter. Like I, I would just, you know, Trump would win a primary in Indiana or something, and then you'd see these just totally wild you know, 80s synth wave plus Japanese anime plus, you know, gas chamber memes. I mean, I, I'm not quite endorsing them because I, I do think they're, they are childish and it's probably something we should get away from. But there, when we were all captured by that feeling of winning, there, there was something just insanely intoxicating about it. And, and just yeah. like no boundaries, every envelope will be pushed, you know, just, just total madness. 
uh, that I, you know, again, I look back on it kind of skeptically and maybe even cynically, but there, there was something, there was something going on. It was, it was a moment in time that was pretty remarkable, maybe unique. Well, it depends on how you interpret it. If you look at it seriously, well, of course, it's it's not making you look serious if you engage in this kind of mimetic. Sure. But it was a time and it was relevant at the time because we were demonstrating our power level in a way, which is a meme in and of it. Wow, we were demonstrating a power level. Uh, this seems to be the type of thinking when you live in an echo chamber and you think that the posting, you know, gas gas chamber memes are <laughs> demonstrating you at your power level. I think this is completely delusional. This is the type of thinking when you when you just have you know a very narrow band of people that you interact with itself. Right. But we were showing just how far we can go on the internet. The development of the alt right showed overwhelmingly that the type of people who were most attracted and most active in the alt right were antisocial losers who couldn't you know maintain relationships, who collapsed under pressure and acted in all sorts of heinous and antisocial ways. So this idea that the alt-right was showing its power levels, well, as soon as the alt-right was increasingly revealed by in real life activism, it absolutely fell apart for the same reason that all the previous iterations of white nationalism have fallen apart because the very low quality of people attracted to them, people with criminal records, people with you know substance abuse problems, uh, people with like flamboyantly destructive personal lives, people who love to play dress up, that previous models of communication couldn't go there. And in a way, a little bit like the peacock displaying its tail, he's showing just how long of a tail he can carry while handicapping himself with a difficulty with regards to predation and other difficulties in life and the, the increased nutrient uh, needed to feed that tail. But he's doing it to show how strong he is to the female. And I think right. that a lot of the mimetics around 2016, the edgy stuff, was to show, look how much we don't care. Look how much we see cancel culture rising in front of us and we run to it and we say, try me. Yeah, that's an excellent comparison. And and you could see that in like the alt-right in general. You could see that in Hail Trump and all that kind of stuff. It was just this uh, throw caution to the wind. Uh, you know, I'm such a badass, I can fly <laughs> mentality. <laughs> now, okay, and those dramatic gestures, like uh, going the Mein Kampf route, almost always led to destruction, loss of job, loss of status, loss of relationships, uh, isolation, poverty, I mean, people quitting supposedly six-figure jobs to you know, preach the gospel about Kevin McDonald's culture of critique doesn't exactly strike me as an adaptive path forward. All right. Uh, what the hell is going on with Sam Harris? Alexandros Marinos. Uh, he gets criticized quite often by decoding the gurus. I don't know anything about him. But in his new interview with John Wood Jr., Sam Harris claims in some sense we we're unlucky that COVID didn't kill hundreds of thousands of children. I have no idea what this is about. Take it back to COVID for a second. In one way, I mean, we got very lucky that COVID wasn't worse than it was, right? You know, it could have been much, much worse. It could have been 10 times as deadly or, or, you know, 50 times as deadly. And we would have, we would have lived through, or many of us wouldn't have lived through something truly awful. But um, mm. had COVID been worse, you know, uh, just enough worse to really get our attention, to really be undeniable, we would have had a different political conversation around it. There wouldn't, there wouldn't have been the same kind of vaccine skepticism. Brett, Brett Weinstein would not have been re releasing 80 straight podcasts on the dangers of the vaccine if a few variables were changed. I mean, just, just take that, leave COVID exactly. So I find it hard to get excited about 
Sam Paris in, in any direction. To me, he's just like Jordan Peterson. He's another member of the intellectual dark web that I don't really care about. So I'm sure occasionally Sam Harris has something good and important to say. I'm sure sometimes Jordan Peterson has something important and insightful to say. There's just such a high signal of noise to value that I, I, I just can't take either of them seriously. Yes, it is. But just make it preferentially dangerous children rather than to old people, right? You just flip that mm-hmm. around, the, the, the variable of age. If kids were dying by the hundreds of thousands from, from COVID at a rate of whatever it was, you know, 1%, say, um, mm-hmm. but if it was pretty much all kids, we, we would have had a very different experience, right? And, right. and the patience, that there would have been no fucking patience for vaccine skepticism, mm-hmm. right? And we, everyone would have recognized that this is not my body, my choice. This is, you're not going to kill my kids with your, with your ignorance, right? And uh, you change one other variable. What if the vaccines actually really did block transmission much better than they in fact did, right? And then there was a moment mm-hmm. where it was only rational to expect them to block transmission. Yeah, I, I don't find this an, a, a thoughtful or interesting or wise uh, thought digression here, here by by Sam Harris. We all constantly affect other people. So people on the left, like Sam Harris, when when they think about how we affect other people, they always want to think in terms, of, usually, of health, right? But we we spiritually, we morally, we culturally, we politically affect other people. We economically affect other people. There are all these realms where we our decisions constantly affect other people. Right? There's nothing we do that doesn't affect other people, right? If you're sitting on the toilet and you choose to read a comic book or Time magazine or even, say, loftier material, that's going to affect you, which will then affect other people. So everything we do, when everyone's gone and you're home alone and you fire up your computer, you can look at pornography, you can look at sports, you can look at Netflix, you can engage in something that's self-enhancing, that's good for you, that inspires you, that's wise and true and just. Right, that's going to affect you, and then will affect other people. So, yeah, Sam, we we affect other people, but not just with regard to diseases, and not just with regard to vaccines. This is happening in thousands of ways every day. Right, the better I become, the better a show I do, and then if you watch it, the more likely that it, if you do become affected by it in some way, that it will lead you in in a positive direction. If I'm spending my my spare time in you know, self-destructive and antisocial ways, then that's going to affect the show, which will then have, have in all likelihood, some negative effect on you. Turns out they don't, don't do it nearly as much as we would hope at this point. Uh, they just shorten the window by, by which, you know, during which transmission is possible. Uh, uh, if they're even doing that now, I don't know. But um Let's say the vaccines really did block transmission, but then nothing else was, you know, all of the other mishigas about how, you know, untested they are and how dangerous they yet might be and the spike protein and blah, blah, blah. Leave all that in place. Just give me a little more transmission blockage and give me kids being preferentially killed or, or injured by yeah, this, this right. disease. I got to assume that uh, Sam Harris is not married and that Sam Harris doesn't have kids. I mean, just 
invoking, oh, if only, you know, hundreds of thousands more kids that had died. I don't think someone married with kids would speak this way. Dennis Prager makes this point. He can immediately tell if someone's uh, married or not, particularly men, that there's just a whole new level of seriousness and responsibility that uh, goes into how you conduct yourself when you're married with kids. I'm not married. I don't have kids. That doesn't mean your life is worthless if you don't have kids. But this this thought experiment that Sam Harris is running now, I don't think he could speak this way if he was married with kids. The, it, the, the obscenity of much of what was said, what much of what was said about COVID at the time at which it was said, you know, the, 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 the conspiracy thinking, the platforming of people who were obviously unwell and unbalanced professionally and mentally. So I spoke earlier about how I become more reluctant to, you know, platform antisocial or self-destructive people, but I hate that word platform. Like just talking to someone on a show. Uh, so I, I'm in between, all right? So I don't take it with the you know, tremendous gravitas that, that Sam Harris does here, and I don't think it's absolutely nothing. And I just hate the word platforming. You're, you're talking to someone. You're talking to someone over the internet, and other people can follow that conversation if it has some value for them. Around, around mm-hmm. vaccines. Uh, and their skepticism, the patience for that would have been non-existent, right? And so we, so in, in some sense, we got unlucky mm-hmm. uh, at how benign this was and how mysterious it it could yet seem. Because, yeah, you could you could run the argument. Well, did he die from COVID or with COVID? He was eighty years old, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. We, you know, that was the situation we were in. I'm saying that there there. And uh, Elliot Blatt says, uh, Luke and Sam Harris can't admit that Brett Weinstein turned out to be correct. What What do you think Brett Weinstein turned out to be correct about? I mean, I'm sure there's something that Brett Weinstein is correct about. But again, the, the huge amount of, of nonsense compared to, to value in, in Brett Weinstein or Eric Weinstein is just astronomical. There are changes in the real world that could have happened and could yet happen that would be would have been immensely clarifying right and mm-hmm. there just would have been no there would have been no less is the just that i'm just asking questions routine would have not and uh elliot blatt thank you for the correction sam harris is married and does have kids so th- that just makes his thought experiment all the more bizarre to me gotten anyone anywhere worth going right and that's um i think there are, so you know to Part of what we're talking about here is, you know, with respect to Trump and with respect to COVID are just contingent facts of these, you know, unique situations, which had they been a little bit different, um, we would, we wouldn't have fragmented in the same way, right? You dial up the, you dial up the risk of COVID, you know, or if, if COVID just had been, you know, just made you physically ugly, right? Like if, like if, if COVID was monkeypox, <laughs> right? And you had pustules cool. on your face, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's that's different than the hypothetical experience we all had of you know, do I? Yeah. Just looking up on Wikipedia, Sam Harris married in two thousand and four, and he has two daughters. Is it a cold? Is it a flu? Is it COVID? Who knows? You know, yeah. you know mm-hmm. like we just. I'm not saying I wish for those things because those are pictures of 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 a worse you know, worse suffering for people, but had those things been in place, 
Um, I just don't think we would have. Uh, I just uh, don't want to waste any more time there on Sam Harris's uh, bizarre thought experiment. Right, let's get back here to a loftier conversation between Jean-Francois Garrepi and Richard Spencer. I Not that... We might have grown a little bit too big of a tail, uh, but <laughs> because you you ultimately, I mean, the peacock's tail is from a strict, hard evolutionary standpoint, it's bad. You know, you could you're more likely to be killed. But as you say, on a on a second level of evolution, it's it's a way of showing your genetic fitness. You're so fit that you can grow this yes. thing. And well, so, I think that there's an equivalent to the legitimate use of the peacock tail. There's an equivalent to the legitimate use of the edginess, which is we were signaling to the system we're not purchasable. We're going right. to self. We're kind of going to play scorched earth with our own careers, and we're not going to be ever purchasable. And you won't ever want to purchase. Okay, so what happens to people who go scorched earth with their careers? Generally speaking, they also go scorched earth with their own best interests. Generally speaking, they also go scorched earth with themselves. And this tends to have a horrible effect on people who care about them and also has all sorts of rippling negative effects on people who may not care about them, but still get affected when you self-destruct, right? It doesn't just happen in isolation, right? You're you're not living in the middle of the the wilderness and other people are going to be taken down. So J.F. Garupi, he valorizes the kind of scorched earth, self-destructive path that he has taken, right? He's moved to, to Northern Canada lives what seems to be a fairly isolated life. And he thinks that this is the path of the, the hero. For, for most people, this kind of path is a disaster. And that's a necessary signal sent to the audience. It's a demonstration of courage, which unfortunately has disappeared a lot from current society. You know, when do we... Okay, so you can go bungee jump and that shows courage. You can... Okay, so some people, they have osteoporosis. So they could go engage in jiu-jitsu or martial arts, but they're at a dramatically higher risk of breaking bones. So you would show courage if you went out and participated in martial arts with osteoporosis or went, did a lot of bike riding with osteoporosis. It would be courageous and it would be stupid and risky and you know, very likely to be damaging to you and then to the people who have to care for you, pay for, you, for your you know, health care, etc. So... Uh, courage is a virtue when it is deployed in a pro-social manner, not when it's deployed in an anti-social, self-destructive manner. You hear about courage being a value at all these days. Well, we demonstrated courage back then, and that's why we earn respect, and I think that's the legitimate part of the signal. Where on earth does, he, where on earth did, does JF think that the alt-right earned respect, and we earn respect? Like, who's respecting JF? like outside of his followers, like who respects the alt-right? Like who respects people who make gas chamber memes? Oh, they're flexing their power. I mean, this this is so delusional. It can only, only happen by someone living in, in a very small world. Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? Oh, blessings, bro. Shalom. Blessings. Uh, wow. So uh, crazy day here, man. Uh, just incredible amounts of rain still. Uh, but I don't want to bore you with a weather report. No, you can you can share. I mean, well, well look, this has been so much rain. Like, I keep thinking it's a joke. Like, this physically shouldn't be possible, you know. And every morning I wake up and it's another fucking downpour. It goes between drizzle and downpour, drizzle and downpour, and you have to think that there's just limits. There's just got to be limits, Luke. 
Stop the madness. Stop the madness. Do black lives matter to you, Luke? God? Do black lives matter to you, Karen? <laughs> yeah. That's oh, terrible, Luke. So, like, I had to do a drive this morning. I took a drive to Gilroy. And there was pools of lake, just pools of water, you know, several inches deep on the freeway. You know, you ever driven through a lake, through a puddle like that, huge puddle? Your car starts to fishtail. It's like, it's, it's a very scary, nerve-wracking experience. I'm coming back there a thousand times if I have to. <laughs> you show us how it's done. You get in that Prius and you show us how to drive with you. Yeah. When they lose, that's how the world works. All these loser yeah. atmospheric rivers, all right, they don't mean jack to me. And then this car passes me and drives through a puddle and it sets up, it throws this wave of water that smashes into the windshield, completely blinding me for several seconds, which seems like hours, you know? Uh, And like, I don't know. It was like my heart rate, like could just quadrupled right there. I kind of like stroked out right there. And, uh, I don't know. It's just weird to complain about the weather, but it's just—it's been a month of solid rain, Luke. I'm losing my mind. Why on earth were you driving to Gilroy? That sounds like an incredibly risky thing to do. Oh, there's a book sale, Luke. There's a book sale. Bro, your I'm life a, is mean, at risk. You, you probably like multiplied by I, you know, five times the odds that you died yesterday. It wasn't pouring when I left, you know, when I left in the morning. You know, when I left, it was fine. It was just a light drizzle. But then, yeah, as soon as I got on, got on the road, these, these raindrops just crash, crash, crash forever. It's just unreal the amount of rain we've got. So, um, wait, wait, wait. There's something I, I need to tell you that uh, I've here, been bro. saying this for a long time. You know, someday a real rain is going to come, and it's going to wash. It's going to rot. It's just going to wash. All the scum off the streets. I mean, the filth and the scum. What about yeah, the filth? Luke? You forgot yeah, the filth. like I, I need people to realize <laughs> that, like, here is a man who will not take it anymore. I mean, here is a man who stood up against the scum, the dogs, the filth. Mm. Like, here is a man who stood up. I mean, this city, this city, San Francisco and, and Los Angeles. I mean, these cities are like an open sewer. They're just filled with filth. They're filled with scum. Mm. Sometimes I can hardly take it. I mean. Why won't a politician just come along and just really clean it up, if you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes I go out and I smell it and I get headaches. It's so bad. They just never go away. It's like I think someone should come along and just clean this whole mess up. They should just flush it down the toilet. I've had those exact thoughts. And in a strange way, I was thinking about that quote. And it might actually come to pass because I don't know how people can survive living outside downpour after downpour day after day after day i mean eventually they're just going to succumb to pneumonia it would seem yeah Um, i mean thank god for the rain because it's helping to wash away the garbage take the trash off the sidewalks we've taken out the trash you know got hard-working citizens such as yourself you know working long hours you know you're hustling you're, you're busy and sometimes you just can't take it anymore because all the animals, they, they come out at night, the whores, the skunks, the buggers, the queens, the fairies, the dopers, the junkies. It's all sick and venal. And someday a real rain 
will come and wash this scum off the streets. I mean, you go all over. You go to Gilroy. I mean, you go to the ocean. You don't care. It doesn't make any difference to you. But but you'll just go anywhere. But wherever you go, there's the filth. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that, but there was a dead coyote in the middle of the road, and I ran straight over it like a dead coyote, a fully intact dead coyote. And I had no time to react, and I ran straight over it. It was the most unsettling feeling I've had in a long time, I did. Have you ever seen a dead raccoon at, uh, at McDonald's? All the time, Luke. It's, 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 yeah. a, it's epidemic Same in the city. city. People bring dead raccoons and they put them in the McDonald's. Nigga, you so motherfucking it's stupid. Epidemic. Look at this shit. It's cost doing business. This motherfucker dude. put the raccoon. Wow. Uh, so anyway, I mean, yeah, so I had a tough day. I mean, it was a fun day, but it was, um, I just can't believe how good I'm going to feel when the sun actually breaks out finally, you know? I mean, it's just weird, like, the sensation of everything being soaked wet. Everything is wet, Luke. It's like wet, wet, wet from all directions. Um. Uh, this guy has to be a historical event. You know, I keep stressing this, but at the end of the day, we're talking about weather and it's not that interesting, but it's, it's the same time. It, it does sort of fill you with this. It, it does kind of rekindle your uh, respect for nature, you know, your fear, of the awesome force that nature can be. Um, so in, it's in, not retros- the, it's not- in retrospect, did you make the right decision to drive out to Gilroy? I did. I did. I had a great day. I, I bought a bunch of books. This this whole hobby sideline gig that I'm doing is turned out to be like incredibly fun, incredibly fun and profitable. It's been like a real. It's been a good move, dude. It's been a. I made a good do. I made a good move for the first time in a long time. Fantastic. And uh, like, give give. Do you buy books for like five dollars and sell them for fifteen? Is that how it's working? I books I buy books for like twenty five cents and I sell them for like twenty five dollars. <laughs> oh, wow. It's insane. I bought a book today. I bought a book for day today for ten dollars, and then according to eBay, I can sell for nine hundred dollars. Wow! Like I, I could be in a new I could be in a new economic strata before we know it, bro. If this keeps up, were, were you inspired by David? <sighs> I'd like to say yes, but in truth, no. Um, I was sort of drawing on another set of influences, to be the truth. Not that I'd like to deny Duva the credit, and if he wants it, he can certainly have it. But uh, in all honesty, I, I was not. Uh, I, I used to work at used bookstores, you know, when I was a fledgling, you know, 19-year-old. And you heard an interesting opinion about Andrew Tate, I believe. I did, and I haven't shared the link with you. It's from this Christian, he might be a monk, I'm not sure, uh, but he has a very spiritual perspective on life, and he gave a long diatribe on Andrew Tate, and I'll send you the link after we talk, and maybe you could play it sometime. Um, but it, it, it's, he uses very religious language that either some people can be comfortable with, other people are not going to be comfortable with. But I, I can definitely translate and become comfortable with. Um, and he explains 
the the problem of Andrew Tate and why he's went, uh, ended up where he is. I mean, he's just got a really keen analysis, and it's really just a pleasure to listen. I subscribe to his channel, um, <clears throat> but <clears throat> I, I it, it was a really refreshing take because it, these are similar to thoughts that I've had, but he seemed to. He seemed to like um, summarize them really succinctly and nicely. It was really, very nice to listen to. And you're not going to give us a summary of what he said? Well, so, yeah. So I'll do my best, but it's not going to be. Basically, Andrew Tate sort of made a deal with the devil. And he, this is not the language he used. I'm just really, ra- I'm, ra- I'm over condensing this, but he's. He's made he's made economic reality his god, and he's made all of you know the lust and the passions that accompany that are part of uh, embodied life. He's made those. He's forsaken true spirituality and sort of embraced the the path of sort of radical materialism, and he's gotten bitten by it. In a, in a really profound way. And he doesn't know the mistakes he's making because he's, uh, his impulses are coming from basically another dimension. Uh, and he needs, he needs a higher dimension to, 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 to put his current um, maladies, his, his current spiritual maladies in check and, pers- and in perspective. Very poor, poor summary on my part. Okay, but I'll send you the link. I'll send you the link, and I'll let you digest it. But uh, and you, you decide whether or not it's worthy for your show. Okay. Wow. Uh, uh, yeah. So, um, but uh, okay. So I didn't even know why I called in. I guess uh, I, I, I was more impressed by that um, Sam Harris clip than you seem to have been. Okay, so tell me more. Tell me what what impressed you. Well, he is basically incredulous that people from a different hero story, right? Is that what you? Yeah, heroes. Yeah, hero system. Yeah, people people adhere to a different hero system than himself. Somehow, magically, and amazingly, came to arrive at the correct conclusions vis-a-vis COVID. That he, the trained rationalist, uh, you know, anti-theist skeptic, should have been able to arrive at. He seemed he cannot square that circle. He cannot understand how a Trump supporter turned out to be more correct about COVID than he, in fact, was. I, I found that to be. I found the cognitive dissonance that he displays there. I watched that clip three solid times and I was like spellbound each time. And it seemed to have very little impact on you, but it made a huge impact on me. And it's turned out to be that it's no surprise that Sam had to close his Twitter account. He's simply lost. He is not as self-aware as he purports to be. And in fact, this whole COVID thing has really put him uh, up against himself and he can't accept what he sees. He's simply in the cognitive dissonance is too strong with him, and it's just very amusing to watch. 
Well, I mean, there are going to be people who are better off without a Twitter account. Probably Sam Harris is one of them, right? Well, certainly, but it's part of like, if you opine for a living, right? And your whole world is your opinions. And then you put a stake in the ground that's, that's supported by evidence that's possibly not there or at least dubious, you're eventually going to become embarrassed. And he has become embarrassed in my point, in my view. And he can't suffer the indignity that comes with having been embarrassed. Yeah, he, he does take himself with with over seriousness. Yeah, I find it hysterical. Uh, but, and I, I do want to, like, take a little parenthetical here and discuss the Weinstein brothers. Yeah. Because, I mean, Eric Weinstein is Meshuggah. Like, I think we both agree on that one. But, I give Brent Weinstein a lot more credit than he seemed to. And I, I think, I mean, he's annoying for sure, and his wife's obnoxious for sure, but he's at least a scientist, and he at least does seem to reach for evidence all the time. You know, he's not a politics first guy in the, in the way that Sam Harris is. And I, I do afford him a bit more respect than you seem to. Yeah, I, I applaud him in that respect. I think it's absolutely useless along with his brother Eric and absolutely so. Yeah, I think the I think the quantities of absurdity are different there. And I think you, I... have you read have you read Brett's book uh, something about uh, evolution and No, 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 no. I can't stand biology. Force the shit out of me. No, no. I just want to say, but he does seem to have the habits of a scientist and he does seem to be reaching for evidence and he seems to, what's the word? He, he, he meticulously attends to caveats the way a disciplined thinker should. I 100% agree with you. I think he does seem to do all of those things. And his book, okay. by the way, is a hunter-gatherer's guide to the 21st century evolution and the challenges of modern life. Okay. I mean, I find discussions of evolution. I mean, uh, yes, it's interesting, but it's. I'm in no way obsessed with it. <laughs> I'm just not. Um, like I find JFKRP tedious. I can't. I can't bear him. I, he just. He's unbearable. Even if it weren't the French accent, he, I just. Whatever he has to say, just just never sort of hits with me, and never. Uh, uh, it just doesn't last with me. It doesn't linger. You know, like, interesting ideas linger with you. Jam therapy doesn't linger with me. Um, if if, you, if yeah. you could return, don't let it burn, don't let it fade. I'm sure I'm not being rude, but it's just your attitude. It's tearing me apart. It's ruining every day. <laughs> Why do you have to make it linger? Do you have to, do you have to, do you have to let it linger? <laughs> the cranberries. Well played, dude. Well played. So I was, uh, I, I, uh, San Francisco's in it. Like I turned on the, uh, turned on the bone during the, uh, broadcast. Apparently, 
they were leading pretty substantially in the fourth quarter, so I just kind of assumed they won. Did they, in fact, win? Yeah, it was it was neck and neck through three quarters, and then San Francisco just turned it on. Yeah. Yeah, they got this new new quarterback that just sort of emerged out of nowhere. He's like the third-string quarterback, and he turns out to be like he has Brady-esque. Um, he's got like a Brady-esque aura about him, like. You know, I told you I was, <clears throat> I was in the, I was in the gym when, uh, when Brady took over. I was watching a football game in the locker room when Brady took over for Drew Bledsoe, like that game, and that game turned out to launch this meteoric career uh, for Brady in New England. <laughs> and so this new guy, Brock, is sort Brock, of similar arc. Brock Purdy, he was the last pick in the NFL draft. Yeah, and. He's he's shined as far as I can tell. I haven't watched closely. I can only just glean from from various media reports. But that would be amusing to watch. But I, I love these. I love these Cinderella stories. Though, so I'm just yeah. like, you know, I, I just I'm a sucker for those. And, and just think of all these opportunities you're going to have to connect <laughs> with your fellow men in San Francisco. You have so many bonding opportunities. So much you know room for social connection. That even someone who's antisocial. And, and you know, otherwise inclined towards a solitary life, you're going to be able to go out there and get hooked up, right? Well, I'm not antisocial. I'm just very discriminating. <laughs> you know Are you looking forward to you're looking forward to all the opportunities for new forms of human interaction over the past few weeks as uh, San Francisco right, marches to Super Bowl glory. All right, let me tell you this. So let me talk through this. So so this might be interesting, might be really boring. But so I've told you about this sort of swim group, right, that I'm sort of loosely, very loosely affiliated with. But, but one of these women is like ultra wealthy, ultra, ultra wealthy, right? And so she's basically, because of her wealth, everybody defers to her, and she's become the queen of the scene, as it were, you know. And so these really strange court dynamics have sort of uh, cropped up around her, you know, because she's just so wealthy. And um, so, so she's recently <laughs> installed a sauna at her palatial estate. And she has invited everybody into the sauna. So in theory, I was invited to go and sort of take a sauna. <laughs> With all these elites, you know? Wow. Like I could have been in the inner circle, bro, you know? Yeah. Like, what, what was that Tom Cruise movie? His last movie directed by Stanley Kubrick? Eyes Wide Shot. You could have had some Eyes Wide Shot action, right? Yeah. So like... Um, and, like, I hemmed and hawed, and, like, I thought, should I go? Should I not go? Should I go? Should I not go? And I ended up not going, Luke. And this is perhaps my sort of antisocial nature. But I just, it just had the potential to become too weird for me. I couldn't parse through all of my motives. So I, I like to know why I'm doing something while I'm doing it. And I couldn't come up with a clear answer for going, right? Because tell you the truth, I don't really bond, you know, I'm not really close to any of these swimmers, 
you know? And it would, you know, and at the end of the day, it would be sort of me trying to becoming a courtier and trying to curry favor with this, with this billionaire, you know? And it just seemed kind of icky to me, so I didn't do it. Is that weak? I'm not sure, but uh, here, I've got a thought experiment for you. Imagine okay. that you're a teenage girl and yeah. your daddy was a billionaire. Yeah. You went to a nice Jewish day school and yeah. you had the opportunity to hook up with a rapper. And so you hook up with this rapper who's like particularly well endowed. And then yeah. you go to school on Monday and you tell everyone about it because you're so proud of what you've done. But you're also yeah. kind of walking funny because you were kind of torn up inside. And so people start mocking you. And, yeah. and then you end up converting to hardcore Islam. Who are we talking about here? <laughs> this is just an imaginary thought experiment. Just... It's an, yeah. <laughs> so this is the coal burner blues or something? Or what are we talking about? It's just, it's just like a theoretical exploration. It, 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 like any resemblance to, to people and places and institutions in real life is strictly coincidental. It's a fictional ex- exploration of ideas. Mm. An ultra precise example, though, I have to feel like it's it's based in uh, real life. Oh no! I've just got this this I've just got this really vivid imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well. <clears throat> Um, I don't know. It's difficult to contemplate, bro. It's um, best avoided. It's a situation best avoided. That's all I can really say. Okay, but I mean, you so, could you could imagine like hooking up with someone and like telling everyone about it, and then realizing you made a big mistake. I mean, I think we've all been there. I think some of us have been there more often than others, bro. Well played, well played. Well played. <laughs> so I, I had another little sideline story to that to okay. tell today. So, <clears throat> so as part of this sort of uh, book sales dealing sideline I've been doing, I've been going to a lot of estate sales, right? And today I went to a well, yesterday and today I went to an estate sale, and. It was like in a penthouse. Have you ever been in a penthouse, bro? Yes. Yeah. So I hadn't. This was my first time inside of a penthouse. And so the man's name, the deceased man's name was Foster. And up here in the Bay Area, there's a city called Foster City. And turns out he was like the developer of Foster City, California. So he was very, um, it was a very, very well-appointed penthouse, let me just say. It was like stuff that you don't normally see, you know? Weird sculpture, just weird designer furniture, just through and through. Everything else was just, there was no Ikea in this place, bro. This was like top-end stuff, you know, through and through. But it was all being sold, you know, because he's now deceased. Um, and, um, 
So among his possessions were a bunch of books. And among the books were these plays. And these plays were from the Bohemian Grove Theatrical Society. Wow. You know what Bohemian? Do you yeah. know what Bohemian Grove is? Yeah, yeah. Isn't it homosexual? Um, well, it's like all these elites go yeah. to Northern California and then they worship Moloch. And Alex Jones talks about this stuff all the time, right? Like, like you have to be really well-connected to go to Bohemian Grove. And he was totally a total Bohemian Grove aficionado. And among his stuff was like all of these plays. So every year... They put on plays and the plays are published and, you know, they're bound. And I'm like, holy shit, this is super interesting. I should buy. A... There must have been 20 of these books. Right. And they were like three bucks each. They were they were basically free. Right. And I'm like, oh, these should be super collectible. I should buy all of them, you know. And then. I got scared. I'm like, what if they're just garbage? What if they're just worthless, right? Am I going to spend, you know, <laughs> 60 bucks on a bunch of garbage? And like, and I, like, I couldn't figure it out. And so this is like moments of self-doubt. You really get to know yourself when you're contemplating taking a risk like this. Yeah. And ultimately, I just said, well, I'll just buy a few. Right. And then I'll research them like crazy when I get home. And if they're they're good, I'll come back and get the rest. Right. <laughs> and it turns out they are pretty valuable. And so I race back there today and I go there and they're all gone. Someone swooped in and s snagged them all right from underneath my nose. And the point is, I had an intuition, Luke. I had an intuition to buy them all, but I couldn't act on the intuition. So. Do you ever encounter that where you have an intuition, you think it's the right thing to do, everything's telling you, but it seems risky, and then you choose fear over your intuition? Yeah, like, you have this... yeah, yeah, yeah. It happened to me the other day. I was I was talking to this bloke who I thought would be fun to talk to more, and I had a social engagement about five miles away, and I wanted mm -hmm. to invite him along. But uh, he then got into a conversation with someone else, and if I was going to make the social engagement on time, it was on, it was on the Sabbath, so I couldn't call. Um, I had to leave, like, right away. And so I thought, you know, it would be much better to walk the five miles with, with someone else than on my own. But my shyness prevented me from breaking in and saying, hey, bro, you know, get together with a bunch of blokes in Bar Clues, you know, five miles away. You know, you want to, you want to come along. What's that? Shyness is fine. Like the Smiths. Do you, do you ever listen to the Smiths? No, I'm more of an air supply guy. Morrissey? He's kind of like the pet. He's he's like, Morrissey is the, um, he's like the favorite homosexual of the alt-right. I, I like a lot of like Morrissey. You. No, I like Morrissey. <laughs> yeah, he talks about shyness. It, it, shyness prevents you from doing the things in life that you like to. I don't know the exact words. That's that's the question. Oh, that was that was Mr. Medica's advice. So in his farewell live stream, he was asked for life yeah. advice, and he said, "You know, give it your shot. You know, get out there and take your shot. shot. Take yeah. your shot, bro." That was excellent advice. I thought. And uh, how many how many volumes did you buy, and how much did you spend per volume? 
Well, okay. So I went to two separate bookstores. First of which was in Gilroy, which I've discovered. And this, the reason I drove that far to Gilroy, it was like $5 for a shopping bag full of books. So you can fit about 20 books into a shopping bag, like a grocery store shopping bag. So let's say I got 80 books for $30, right? That's probably what I'd estimate. I didn't, I didn't actually count them. Uh, some are more valuable than others. But then I drove back up to the city and through the city, I stopped in Palo Alto, where there's this monster book sale going on. And this Palo Alto is basically, it's like the capital of Silicon Valley. It's, it's, it's probably one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, smaller cities in California. I mean, it's, it's a choice address. Lots of money there. It's a huge bookstore. There's 70,000 books for sale. And it happens every single month. It's amazing. So, but they had this um, high value book sale. So one of these, so, so these are special books that have a high dollar amount. And so the high dollar amount is $10. So just to put that in perspective, most books at a book sale are a dollar or less, right? But this was a high value book sale and there's fewer books, but the books were quasi expensive, meaning $10. But I found one book about butterflies it was written in like the the 1800s and i did a quick ebay search and i figured out it was worth like 900 bucks so i snagged it for 10 bucks bro do you want to do you know what a do you know what a testosterone rush that is bro when that happens (laughs) that's great if you can sell it (laughs) it's like a full body orgasm bro full body Congratulations. So there was other books too, not not, not the same numbers. I know I'm coughing a lot, but it happens when I'm lying on my back and talking, which is what I'm doing now. Um, but I'm into the gummies. I got another jar of gummies. I'm working my way through those. And I'm now a connoisseur of cough drops, Luke. So if you feel like you need to expand your repertoire of cough drops. Yeah, what do you recommend? I don't know the names right now, but I can send you pictures. But there's there's a whole world of cough drops out there that's that's much bigger than your what are the, what are yours called? Oh, um, I forgot that, but I'm gonna say Ricola, Ricola, uh, Ricola, yeah, Ricola, Ricola. <laughs> Ricola, yeah, Ricola is just like the um, it's just entry level, bro. It's just a pleb tier. There's cough drops out there that'll blow your mind, man. Okay, good to know. I'm, I'm stuck here in Australia with Vicks Vapor Drops original menthol. Oh God, that's that's like that's ghetto tier, bro. That's embarrassing. I wouldn't be seen with Vicks, bro. So, okay. All right. Well, I think I think I, I think I've I think I've run out of gas, my dude. Okay. I think we we gotta we cut this off when it's at the peak. Yeah. We peak right now. That's we climax, dude. That's what everyone says. That they notice that we always cut it off at the climax. That's right, bro. I keep them coming back for more, bro. Yeah, better to leave them longing rather than loathing. That's that's right, bro. All that's right, nice. all right. Shalom. Peace out. All right. Bye bye. Bye. I agree. Um. All right. Is there is there anything else you want to say about like? I'm curious. How did so did you just randomly try to reactivate your account or was your account reactivated 
at the request of Twitter? I'm, I'm curious. So I've spent uh, the last year. So this is uh, Richard Spencer talking to Jean-Francois Garapie. Here, basically refiling an appeal every week. And uh, every week they would send me an email that says we've stacked your current appeal on your old appeal because we haven't addressed your old appeal and the cases seem to be related. So basically it was a bot detecting, okay, this guy just keeps appealing, we're going to stack the cases. And I started appealing even many times a week in the last month. Uh, what I also did is on my show <clears throat> with a small audience, I was telling my, my people, clip my request to Elon Musk and I was sending messages to Elon Musk and they were clipping it and publishing it as Twitter video. Uh, basically every two or three days I was complaining and yelling at Elon Musk and telling him that his amnesty general was a fake thing and that as long as I wasn't banned, this was all a lie. So I, I made a lot of pressure so that he couldn't publicly affirm really that he had given general amnesty until right. he liberated my account. Now, did, did he pay attention to those clips? I don't know. But eventually, uh, a week that uh, that many clips like this were being shared and retweeted on Twitter, uh, it, it eventually got unlocked. And I got unlocked at the same time as Stefan Moliner. So that makes me think I, I was maybe part of a batch of libertarians or uh, maybe Twitter had some ca Canadians, maybe, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> maybe Twitter had put me in some box and they were waiting to make a decision. But since I'm back on Twitter, I've also published a list of accounts that I would want to be unbanned, about 25 accounts that I've spotted. And I've demanded Elon Musk unbans them before I declare that Amnesty General has been achieved. And already three of them were unbanned uh, 10 hours after I tweeted about it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that if Elon is serious, there has to be a kind of... There has to be... So do you, do, you think, uh, do you think that Elon is sitting there going, oh my God, uh, JFKRP, he's not going to you know, praise my unbanning of people until I unban the following 25 accounts. Boy, I sure hope that I can get uh, JF on board. I, I suspect that didn't really enter into Elon Musk's thinking. Not even a general amnesty. There has to be a Bill of Rights, so to speak, yes. where you know why you're banned. And I also think that... Okay, so this, this notion that we need a, a Bill of Rights, all right, that uh, we need more and more rights, we need them clear, we need them hard, we need them delineated, we need them spelled out, we need them reliable. That's all well and good. But the reality is we live in a complicated world and rights can get taken away at any time due to a change in situation. So you had the influenza epidemic of COVID and so governments all around the world discouraged you know, public gathering, going to church, going to synagogue, you know, all sorts of rights, you know, gathering together to petition the government, all sorts of rights to be taken for granted can always get taken away like this. So we never get to escape the tyranny of the situation. So you can you can demand for, for a bill of rights, you can demand that things be spelled out with you know great exactitude and that's all well and good many positive things about it but in the final analysis right, as situations change your rights will always be changing so you are constantly changing the world around you is constantly changing that nothing lasts forever uh, it's all great to have these rights situation changes your rights are going to change with them that a permanent a death sentence effectively is unfair Absolutely. in the sense that you know you can definitely ban someone for you know, posting a death threat or something. But even in the legal system, uh, if you post... So there are all sorts of things that you think are unfair and are unfair, but it's just how the world works. For example, you betray a friendship, right? If a person has a significant reason to, to think that you, you know, betrayed and screwed him over, all right? If you have betrayed someone's confidence, right? You may think, oh, it's unfair that they haven't forgiven me. But 
in, in many human interactions there's no forgiveness, right? Ideally, yes, you should forgive other people in the way the world works. Other people are going to forgive you. And that may be unfair, and you think, oh, there should be no permanent bans. It's, it's the way the world works. If you threaten someone's life, uh, you know, you might, will probably go to jail for some time, but you are released at some point. Um, there just are certain crimes that don't, most all crimes don't reach the level of the death penalty. And I, I think that should be taken into account. There just has to be something. What, what do you think Elon is after? And what, what's your take on Elon? I, I might be more cynical than you are. Well, I think he's a genius. And I think he's reawakening an internet that I thought was lost to forever. And mm-hmm. so I, I want to commend his genius. He is creating a, a form of life, basically. I think that Elon pretty much... Okay, so when you ask someone a question, like Richard Spencer just asked, what do you think of Elon? JS starts giving his response, and Richard immediately interjects, yeah, you're definitely you know, less cynical than I am. Like, when you ask a question, just let people speak, right? You don't have to give your immediate commentary. Approaches the net as a biologist, he, you know, he, he sees life, and he didn't feel life anymore on Twitter. That, that's when, when he keeps uh, complaining about butts, Ultimately, we're talking about the, the, the creepy line between bots, artificial intelligence, and real human beings, which is constantly blurred these days. Right. But Elon Musk didn't feel that there was the normal life of the internet anymore on Twitter, and he reawakened it already. I can feel the difference, because even when I was banned, I still had my account. I could... Really, we're having a, a difficult time these days distinguishing between bots and real human beings. I, I wasn't aware that this was difficult browse i could see what was going on on twitter and you can feel the difference in the last month there is much more diversity of thought and i think elon musk approaches it from a diversity of thought humanitarian perspective and ultimately perhaps a, a megalomania goal of having an x platform the, the software of all software that maybe is the ultimate dream but for now what he's interested in is reawaken the life of the internet that he has known as someone who was an early adopter of the internet world uh, okay. Do, do you now, see of course, a there, this is also spread in a global in kind of political goal because he's also admitted recently being a Republican. So I think right. that what he signed in 2016, as much as the big tech leftist keeps saying we should never redo 2016, never again. I think that Elon is saying, yes, again, let's do it again. Right. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit more ambivalent towards doing it again than you are. Uh, <laughs> And, and what's the evidence that Elon Musk wants to do 2016 again? Right? I don't think that uh, to be a supporter of uh, free speech, you need to you know, do 2016 again. I'm kind of skeptical of this analysis. But I think you were traumatized. I think you carry trauma from 2016. Is that correct? Well, sure. There, there might be some truth to that. Um, I, the main thing is that if it's going to be done again, it will be done. Like, we already saw it. It would be like, it would be like you're you're up at bat in the big game and it's the ninth inning. I'm sorry for the American sports metaphor for a French Canadian, but follow along if you can. You're up well, at bat and uh, you strike out, and then you go home and you start like pretending to hit a home run and swinging away. So I have plugged and unplugged my camera, which contains the microphone. So let me know if the audio quality of my voice has improved. So you'll just see a still picture of me. But I hope that the audio quality at least has improved. And going to the batting cage and hitting all these homers and like imagining that it was real. Because what I mean is that we've seen this thing and it didn't exactly work. And there, there was some trauma involved. There were some things that shouldn't be repeated. And I do get the sense from a lot of alt-right Twitter that they desperately want to reinvent 2016 and kind of like a programmer 
they're trying to put the pieces back together. It's like, we saw this experiment, you know, if you put hydrogen and oxygen together in a tube and you light a match, boom, you get water. So let's reproduce that experiment. Well, that's not how history works. And no. I, I, I feel like if they reproduce 2016, it would just be some like massively dumb Candace Owens version of like Ron DeSantis campaign. And I, I almost would rather, uh, yeah, I would obviously rather Joe Biden win again. I, I think Joe Biden's going to wow. be good too. Absolutely. You would still stand with Joe Biden. Oh well, yeah, that 100%. Is, Joe Biden, that is amazing. Well, we could get into a debate about this if you like, but yeah. but you understand my point. They're they're trying to reproduce an experiment as if it were in a laboratory, but we're not in a laboratory. You don't reproduce these things. You no, have I to think move you're absolutely forward. right. And if we were to go at it t- too much from a uh, from a position of redoing exactly 2016, that would be cringe. And it's a little bit what Donald Trump. It's it's the same cringe that I feel when Donald Trump goes with his "I love America" type of speech in, in 2023, 2022, and where it doesn't kind of catch like the 2016 because we all know it's a pale copy of who he's been and who, who he's been yeah. projecting to be. So if you go just from a nostalgia perspective, it will suck. But I think that the the path that Elon is allowing, which is much cleverer than this, is let's make a chaotic situation again and let's see what happens with the world once freed. Because I think that there are certain ingredients that, have, that haven't been mixed in properly in 2016. And I think that the redo of the experiment will lead to different results. Uh, for example... So later on in this uh, podcast, uh, Richard and JF congratulate each other on never having fallen out. So not falling out with people is in and of itself, all other factors, a beautiful thing. But if it comes to intellectual dialogue, right? If you're talking to production on, on podcasts, live streams, there are a lot of factors, you know, more important than whether or not you've fallen out, such as, you know, whether you've spoken accurately, profoundly, wisely, righteously, justly, and uh, including to someone with whom you have profound disagreements, or did you pull your punches to preserve your relationships? Okay, so there's, there's a new series on BBC Radio 4, which is also on Apple Podcasts, and it's called The New Gurus, and it is being created and curated by Helen Lewis, a center-left British feminist journalist. I used to say that I was IDW adjacent, I guess. This is James Lindsay. My typical reach right now is somewhere in the one to five million people range. James became famous for his part in the so-called grievance studies hoax. Alongside two co-conspirators, he submitted spoof papers to academic journals. Subjects included the conceptual penis and dogs raping each other in parks. I just read my email. We have our first win. The dog park paper has been accepted. We have an accepted paper in the number one feminist geography journal. The trio wanted to expose, as they saw it, the politically correct excesses of academia. The intellectual dark web kind of as a movement was sort of pricking that bubble and trying to pop it. And my suspicion of academia now is total. I actually think I trust like the van down by the river that says free candy. I would like probably send my kids into the free candy van before I would trust academia at all. I first interviewed James in 2018 when he'd recently finished the grievance studies hoax. And he struck me as interesting and eloquent, as well as combative confident, and maybe a little self-aggrandizing. I didn't think about it much for a couple of years until I heard that he'd been in a high-profile fight on Twitter with the Auschwitz Museum. I actually joined Twitter in like 2012. I was abnormally patient, abnormally willing to engage in dialogue. And what I was doing was destroying myself 
mentally and emotionally with the level of frustration, the trolling, etc. And so self-defensively, just being dismissive and rude is a strategy. It was, oh, well, let's have a dialogue. I would love to have a debate. No, screw that. Your mom sucks. You know, just go right to the throat and just, because it's Twitter. Okay, but that ends up with you arguing with the Auschwitz Museum. Well, I didn't quite argue with them. I just called them out for what they said, and then people said it was an argument. You compared vaccine mandates to the Holocaust, which is just something I would not recommend anybody do. It's well, just pouring a big can of gasoline all over that particular argument. Well, I seriously hope that I was wrong about that, but we'll see what happens. I still stand by what I said. If I'm honest, I regard James as a classic case of internet poisoning, the occupational hazard of the online guru. He gazed into the abyss, and the abyss gazed right back into him. The other one I wanted to talk to you about was the idea that there is a kind of alliance between Marxists and paedophiles. Well, I don't know if there's an explicit alliance. I think there's a... So back in, in 2018, I was talking about this book, The, the Perils of the E-Personality, which I think is such a more specific and clear way of describing the internet poisoning that Alan Lewis was just talking about. So gazing into the abyss and the abyss gazing back into you, that doesn't really explain anything. On the other hand, The Perils of the E-Personality by a psychiatrist in Silicon Valley describes accurately what happens when you go online. You tend to be more impulsive, more self-aggrandizing, uh, more narcissistic, uh, more dark. You tend to go into darker areas that, than you would if you're interacting with people face-to-face. So those are some of the very specific cues that happen with the perils of the e-personality. I think a little more specific and explanatory and predictive than this notion of gazing into the abyss and then the abyss gains in, gazes into you. Uh, something of a handshake agreement. I don't think people appreciate what is actually happening in the world around them. And I don't think people appreciate where the world is going if it's not put to a stop soon. James does believe a couple of things that the mainstream media, quite rightly, regards as crazy. He thinks that the World Economic Forum, an international lobbying organisation which meets every January in the Swiss town of Davos, has infiltrated national politics to pursue a sinister agenda for world government called the Great Reset. Which, if that were the case, makes it pretty odd that the WEF published the plan on its website. That's a pretty rookie error for a shadowy conspiracy, I would say. I think that we should have trials at The Hague and we should be treating these people as traitors. Hang on, hang on a minute. What's Yeah, the Great Reset simply means that uh, politicians are trying to take advantage of a situation to push politics in the direction that they favor, right? We all employ the same strategy. Whenever there's turmoil or change, we all try to take advantage of it in service of our particular hero system. So, no, I don't think there's anything particularly sinister about the Great Reset, as is essentially what all of us do. The charge that you would reign against them at The Hague, what criminal statute have they broken? Maybe it's not The Hague then, because the people working under Joe Biden who are working for the World Economic Forum as opposed to working for the United States and their oath to the Constitution are traitors. So maybe the United States should be hanging these people as traitors. And I said hanging, hanging. I said hanging, and I mean it. Some people who haven't seen the things that you've seen will say this sounds conspiratorial. It is conspiratorial. Would you like to know who the conspirators are? <laughs> there is a conspiracy. For the record, I've seen no evidence that a Marxist paedophile alliance, however nebulous, exists. 
or any evidence that the Great Reset is a sinister plot. But those are ideas you can find all over the place online once you start looking. And with apocalyptic pronouncements on subjects like that, James Lindsay amassed more than 200,000 followers on Twitter. Tweeting day and night, social media made him famous. It also made him hated. I've heard that I'm widely regarded as second on the poll after Alex Jones in terms of being absolutely crazy. And so I'm bad PR to be associated with. What I think about is when you're in your position, which is that you feel that the US is on the brink of revolution, the world's on the brink of genocide, it must be an enormous psychological burden not to be listened to, to be banned from Twitter, to be John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. Okay, I've got some uh, great news. I am huge in Uzbekistan. Apparently, according to Apple podcast rankings, right, my podcast ranks 57th in the category of news in Uzbekistan. Pretty exciting. It was. I'm not actually that way anymore. I actually wanted an exit from Twitter that I couldn't figure out how to achieve. And then Twitter kind of slapped me in the face and gave me one. James is a smart guy, but I can't get over this one simple question. When you catch yourself arguing online with the Auschwitz Museum, do you think, hold on, maybe it's time to log off? There's nothing inherently wise or true or good or holy about the museum attached to any particular genocide, right? They're no more likely to have wisdom or truth, uh, righteousness, uh, decency, clarity than any other organization, right? There's nothing inherently horrible about arguing with some museum. But he wasn't the only IDW guru whose views got more extreme during the pandemic. Take the British broadcaster Majid Nawaz. He was fired as a presenter on the radio station LBC for claiming that mandatory vaccination was a, quote, global palace coup by fascists who seek the new world order. Here he is talking to fellow IDW member Brett Weinstein on Brett's podcast, Dark Horse. So no jab, no drug for me became a crime against humanity. It is a crime against humanity, and these so-called vaccines are mysterious in their content. Becoming ever more extreme because the market rewards it is known as audience capture. When you're an online guru, you have an exceptionally keen sense of what your fans want because the feedback you get is overwhelming. And Elliot says 5,000 armed guards for the World Economic Forum does seem a bit excessive. But really, I mean, you have a lot of very powerful people there and you have a lot of terrorists in the world. It sounds about right to me. When when the Australian cricket team uh, flew into to Pakistan, right, there were about 5,000 armed guards for the Australian cricket team, right? They closed the highways, right, to transport the Australian cricket team, right? They just had hundreds and hundreds of armed guards just for uh, a couple of uh, three test matches between between Pakistan and Australia in Pakistan. So given what they're protecting now, I don't think 5,000 armed guards for the World Economic Forum is excessive. For many online gurus, their very identity is shaped by their audience's view of them. They become who their fans want them, need them to be. Yeah, people who are empty inside, right? People who don't know who they are, who are frustrated with reality, are frustrated with their own position in reality. They find some success online, and I can speak firsthand 
that uh, there there were times when you know my metrics was you know a really big part of who I was, my media appearances, right, my my reach, my fame, right, my my career, right. That would normally naturally be a big part of who you are if you devote a lot of time and attention and and energy to to a task. But then if it becomes you know, the dominant, you know, overwhelming all other ways of understanding yourself, yeah, you you're going to be deformed by that. So some people can handle success and other people become deformed by it. The brave anti-woke warriors sticking two fingers up at the mainstream. But what if woke people and the hated mainstream media get it right sometimes? The COVID vaccines are safe and effective. Climate change is real. An 84-year-old guy called Klaus is not secretly plotting a tyrannical world government from an alpine resort. Alice Drager. How, if you're a heretic, do you stop yourself becoming a knee-jerk contrarian or even falling for conspiracy theories? I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I mean, I think the problem arises when you have these people who are um, seeking to be heretics, right? For the new atheist Sam Harris, the 2020 election in America was the final straw for his membership of the IDW. He saw friends and former friends denying that Donald Trump had lost fair and square. Here is Sam on his hugely successful podcast, Making Sense. Insofar as I've noticed what others in the so-called intellectual dark web have been saying, with some members of this fictional group sounding fairly bonkers, it's generally not something I want to be associated with. Allow me to take this moment to turn in my imaginary membership card. And this brings me back to my old sparring partner, Jordan Peterson. Here he is talking to his daughter, Michaela, on her podcast about the problem with Twitter. And yes, everyone in the story has a podcast. Yeah, exactly. Well, it was like sort of like standing in a public park where anybody, no matter who they were, could come up and yell at you to any size audience about anything they wanted, day or night. Throughout the early months of COVID, Jordan Peterson had been eerily silent. He had become hooked on tranquilizers, and his family took him to Moscow where he was put in a medical coma to detox. When Peterson returned to public life, he quit his university position and joined a conservative site called The Daily Wire. His tweets became wilder and wilder. It was shocking to David Fuller, whose life had been transformed by listening to Peterson's YouTube lectures and who had travelled halfway around the world to meet his guru. Now, he realised, he was losing his faith. It's mostly quite recently that I felt that things really kind of went over a, a line. There were some more personal attacks on Twitter in particular. There was, there was one towards the plus-size swimwear model. Sports Illustrated, swimsuit edition, I've tweeted out. Sorry, not beautiful. <laughs> also, his conversation around Russia and Ukraine I found quite disturbing as well. All protestations to the contrary. None of us give a damn about Ukraine, and never have. There was also... And Elliot Blatt asks, how can a fake paper not only be accepted by a prestigious academic journal, but also win an award? Well, the, the journals that James Lindsay had his papers accepted to were not prestigious journals. Right? These were journals that anyone could get something published in. It's like those people who proclaimed that they'd been nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Well, anyone can be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. It requires nothing 
but paying an entrance fee and sending in a nomination. I could be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. And uh, so too, these, there, there are plenty of academic journals that accept any, any publication that you will pay for. So these were not prestigious academic journals who are accepting these nonsense papers. And then how can an academic paper that is nonsense win a prize? Because guess what? Many prizes are simply money-making activities. So just like there are publications where you pay to get your poetry published, you know, in the journal and uh, it'll be like the Western world's, you know, 500 most gorgeous poems. And if you pay $150, that'll include your poem, no matter its quality. So to their prizes that are simply money-making opportunities that if you simply pay the $100 entrance fee, right, you can be in the mix for winning a prize. So it's not like a Nobel Prize. It's not like uh, these were prestigious academic journals. You pay the money, right, you get, you get the publication and you get the bogus prize. A series of, of pieces that came out complaining about his ban from Twitter, which was for one of the tweets that he put out about Elliot Page. Um, the actor who is transgender and transition. Yeah. Here is the tweet in question. And Elliot Blatt says, why haven't the vaccination enthusiasts offered a coherent explanation about why they've been so ineffective? Well, have you been listening to This Week in Virology? Right? Every week you can listen to the world's leading virologists discuss these topics. And you can get links to academic papers, you know, exploring the efficacy of uh, all sorts of vaccines. Remember when pride was a sin? And Ellen Page just had her breasts removed by a criminal physician. Up yours, woke moralists. We'll see who cancels who. You start having these misgivings. When's the moment you decide, I've got to say something? Um, it had been building up for quite a while. I thought it would be good to do this in an interview with Jordan because I felt our shared history required that I, if I was going to say these things, I should try and say it to his face. In the end, Michaela, his daughter, stepped in and kind of categorically refused. She took offence to something that I'd said. David Fuller found himself in a difficult position. So a lot of uh, pundits and, and gurus, right, they have far more followers than friends. And uh, once once a pundit or a guru's slotted you into the category of follower, like any any criticism that you then give that pundit or guru feels like you know the grossest basis betrayal. Jordan Peterson had been personally kind to him, and had helped grow David's YouTube channel, Rebel Wisdom. It was the pieces on the Jordan Peterson phenomenon that started the growth of the channel, and this just gradually sort of picked up steam and got more and more listeners and more and more viewers so i've really wrestled with a sense of what is my personal loyalty towards him versus you my... owe him yeah this was the way i was thinking about dennis prager even though i'd always had a combative relationship with dennis prager i was always arguing with him when i'd call into his show when i would publish any criticisms on on a blog or on an internet chat group it just received you know universal condemnation from uh dennis prager fans and you know, I realized that uh, simply socially unacceptable for, for me to criticize Dennis Prager. So I had to give give up all society with people who felt that way. So I was in the same position that David Fuller was with Jordan Peterson, only it was me vis-a-vis -vis Dennis Prager back in 1997, early 1998. And I chose my free speech, as did David Fuller. 
something. Yeah, yes, for, for sure. David worried he had developed a parasocial relationship with his guru. Even though they'd only met twice, David felt that he knew Peterson. Do you see him as a sort of father figure? Is that part of your relationship with him? I've asked myself this question. I think one of the things that Jordan Peterson says, we're not necessarily transparent to ourselves. He was seen as a father figure by so many people. It's definitely possible. This idea of parasocial relationships, feeling as though we're personal friends with people whose content we consume online, is key to understanding the new world of gurus. It ex- so Elliot Blatt says, look, every, my, my entire family has been maximum vaxxed and every single one has got COVID. So you don't find informed virologists proclaiming that if you get vaccinated, you won't get COVID. It is instead endorsed that you have a lower chance of being seriously ill, hospitalized and dying, right? Now, in some of the promotion for the vaccines, some of the less adept uh, publicists would say, oh, if you get the vaccine, you, you won't get COVID. But uh, people who are informed about vaccines wouldn't make that point. Obviously, we get flu shots every year and people who get flu shots still get the flu. But the stated purpose of flu shots and of COVID vaccines is to reduce your chances of becoming severely ill. Also, your individual anecdotal you know, experience with your family doesn't really um, have any you know, wider scientific validity. Right. You, you just can't you know, make, make a case from anecdote. Explains why someone like Jordan Peterson has such ardent fans ready to avenge any slight against their idol. David knew that if he criticised Peterson, he would lose some of his own audience, people who would see it as a betrayal. But he did it anyway. So what was the response when you published your Substack piece? And Elliot says, isn't the sceptical position the one most consistent with the evidence? No, I don't believe so. I believe, generally speaking, the public health advice of at the beginning of the influenza epidemic, staying away from large crowds, so social distancing, uh, wearing a mask, uh, you know, working from home if, if possible. Uh, this was all pretty good, solid advice. We're about a, a month into the epidemic when you had public health authorities starting to promote the wearing of a mask then getting a vaccine clearly diminishes your chances of severe illness or death from, from COVID. So I think that the public health authorities have, generally speaking, been correct with regard to COVID. Now, has you know some of them done it um, artfully, ineptly? Could they, could they have done it better, sharper? Sure, right? It's a human bureaucratic response, which is always going to contain, you know, elements of flaw. But overall, I think that the public health authorities were largely correct with regard to public health measures to reduce the spread and the severity of COVID. Thing, I've got some concerns. Definitely very mixed. Privately, a lot of support and a lot of people saying thank you for articulating something that we've been feeling. Aren't I a little easy on the vaccine pushes? I really don't know that much about this topic, so it's it's not uh, it's not a primary primary fascination for me or a primary area of, of research. So I leave it to people who are more educated in these things to debate. 
and I'm happy to accept whatever becomes the consensus academic opinion with regard to this. But from from where I stand, from the from the little I know, it seems to me that the public health authorities have done more good than harm with regard to influenza. Now, there are other areas where I think public health authorities have done more harm than good. So it's not like I always automatically side with public health authorities. So public health authorities who say push, push children to become you know, transsexual, I think uh, that's an absolute disaster. A lot of people criticizing, saying, how could you do this to, to someone that you had this relationship with? I mean, I'm certainly aware of probably having it gives someone ridiculous doors. parameters so that's what... like like you're saying we would have never gotten these beautiful shows like the office these like this is what i don't know about you but that's what got me through the pandemic was comedies and a lot of older ones that you could never do now like during the pandemic by the way i was home you know we were home for that 14 day curve thing that lasted for three years um i actually got to the end of netflix just the end <laughs> there was nothing left. i knew there was a you problem was just on my couch did 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 it log you out automatically? Like you're done, you're done here. You've accomplished everything you need. <laughs> Here's how you know you're at the end of Netflix when you're watching season two of just that fireplace. <laughs> the Yuletide log. I remember that. that log, no, no, yeah. no, Jamie. You and I are older. Remember when TV used to go off at night and the uh, the national anthem used to play? That's. Hey, I'm trying to run a show here. Bloody hell. Right, learning about how work, you know, workness has destroyed mainstream comedy. Bloody hell! Let's go back to the new gurus by Helen Lewis, episode five, gazing into the abyss. One of the problems with the alternative media is these invisible networks of patronage, these kind of aligned friendships behind the scenes. Alice Drager sees the same problem of social connections throughout the whole of the guru sphere. Okay, so Elliot Blatt's a friend of mine, but I had no problem you know, disagreeing with him and him with me, such as over COVID and vaccines. Elliot says, isn't it reasonable to expect one maximum vax to not contract COVID? No, it's not reasonable. It's not reasonable to believe that. What is reasonable to believe is that you'll have a reduced chance of being hospitalized or dying from COVID if you're vaccinated. You wrote in the Chronicle after the intellectual dark web piece came out it isn't a solution it might just be a sign of the end times is that still how you see it i do because i think what you have is this cult of personality problem conflating itself with scholarship i really do feel like that's end times because basically then we're just going back to little churches right we're just going back to what the original system was except instead of having one giant church we have lots of little churches where you pick your pastor and follow them and believe what they say you know some of the folks in that group have done some good work but a lot of them just have gone off the rails so this is my life experience i don't know a lot of people who picked a church and then believed everything that the pastor said all right we did not evolve to be gullible this is my problem with this whole series they just treat you know, people as fodder for, for gurus to just do with them as they will, right? In, in the real world, people don't go to a synagogue and then accept everything the rabbi says. In the real world, people don't join a church and then accept everything that the, the pastor says. So this is pretty delusional analysis from Helen Lewis and company and the BBC. Alice doesn't regret refusing the chance to be in the intellectual dark web. 
what a tragic ship, right? <laughs> it turned out to be. It's just such a tragic ship. I feel like I didn't step on the Titanic there. I got got <laughs> delayed at the dock and decided to have one more cup of tea and didn't get on the boat. So, yeah. Today, the IDW has split in two. After Elon Musk took over Twitter, Jordan Peterson and James Lindsay were allowed back on the platform. Within hours, both had tweeted dozens of times. By contrast, on the 24th of November, Sam Harris suspended his account. Some of the IDW have stayed heterodox thinkers, genuine originals challenging all kinds of received wisdom. Others have become straightforward conservative pundits. A handful are now conspiracy theorists. Amid all this, David is wondering what to do next after winding down his YouTube channel. David Fuller strikes me as someone who is still searching for answers, searching for a father figure, searching for a guru, one who won't let him down this time. How does... Okay, I I don't think so, right? Everyone is good in certain situations, bad in other situations. So this is what I found particularly helpful for my tendencies towards hero worship, you know, recognizing that... uh, some public figure who I admire or some scholar who I, I look up to recognize that they're good in some things that they're bad in others, just like you and me, right? We, we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And if you take in this situationist perspective, right, you're not going to be vulnerable to inappropriate hero worship. Does a guru stay sane? It's a good question. I mean, if you look at how many have... And the chat says cults do exist, though. Yes, every in-group is a cult, right? Every in-group has all the characteristics of a cult. A strongly identified in-group will take on all the characteristics of a cult. Some lead you in a positive direction. Others lead you in a neutral direction. Others lead you in a negative direction. Uh, so some in-groups, right, their their trajectory is towards, you know, antisocial, personally destructive directions, uh, other in-groups lead you in an uplifting direction. I would say not many. And if you're outside the mainstream, then your living starts depending on the amount of views that you're getting, on the reaction that you're getting, on the number of Patreon views, all of this. It's very difficult to avoid that kind of radicalizing path. And why that's really significant is because we've increasingly replaced the institutions with individuals like how how many people now are getting most of their information from individuals like joe rogan or russell brand or jordan peterson or so this is a really deep problem for it's not a really deep problem right we did not evolve to be gullible all right so there are going to be areas where an individual gives you more wisdom more clarity more righteousness than the new york times right someone who really knows his topic is going to reliably give you better information, better perspective than some, you know, mainstream journalist who only has an amateurish understanding of a topic. So sometimes individuals really do know better than institutions, and sometimes institutions do better than individuals. It is all situational. We, we don't have to worry about this and pull our hair out because we didn't evolve to be gullible, right? We're looking for information that helps us solve problems and we're looking for information that makes us feel better and we're looking for information that compels our attention and we're looking for information that entertains us or finding truth
Join me next time as I explore another group of gurus also wrestling with changing social attitudes. All right, this is uh, day gamers and daydreamers. This is the empire. Creators share empiricism, extreme. I don't know about you, but I think being an online guru sounds like a surprisingly tough gig. Even the most benevolent online guru. So guess what? In some ways, being an online guru is a tough gig. In other ways, it's an easy gig. In some ways, being a secretary or a teacher or a policeman is a tough gig. In other ways, it's an easy gig. Right? All gigs have tough and easy components. So no one's forced to become an online guru. They do it because the rewards exceed the price paid. Gurus can get worn down by the intensity of internet fame. And the sheer effort of resisting conspiracism, extremism. Uh, people get worn down if they're not well balanced, right? If they don't take good care of themselves, they don't have friends, family, connections, community. And the endless demands of the algorithm. So what kind of person wants to become a guru, dreams about it, schemes about it, makes it their life's mission? Happy Independence Day to all you bachelors, to all you cads, to all you nomads who are not tied down, who are not needy. Here's one. This is Tom Torero. Not his birth name, but we'll get to that later. In the world of online relationship advice, he was once a well-known name. Around 2010, he set himself up as a dating guru on YouTube. Specifically, he was a day gamer. Valentine's Day, the day of the year which makes me feel nauseous. It's a day where we celebrate weak men, men who are groveling, men who are needy. Day game is a technique used by pickup artists. It means you talk to a woman during the day, on the street, and you try to get her number, get a date, get her to have sex with you. A day gamer should be relentless. He should have a strategy to overcome any initial reluctance. For a while, Tom Torero was the king of day game. Guys misunderstand this and they say, OK, Tom, you're against relationships, you're against love, you're against affection, you're against warmth. God, Tom, your life must be miserable. Wrong, wrong, wrong and wrong. As with so many things Tom Torero said on the internet, we should treat those last few sentences with scepticism. Because around a year ago, Tom Torero disappeared. I got a text message from an acquaintance. I don't think he remembered that we were married, but he texted me and asked, had I heard about Tom? I'm Helen Lewis, a staff writer for The Atlantic, and I think we are living through a golden age of gurus. Everywhere you look online, people are giving and taking advice. As our trust in institutions wavers, we are looking to charismatic individuals to tell us how to live. If you're making a quarter million dollars a month on YouTube and more, I get why you would want to do a broadcast every day. This is a story about technology and economics and about our search for certainty in an uncertain world. What I do, I don't regard it as a job. I regard it as a passionate mission. How are these gurus changing our lives and the world around us? And who holds them to account? For BBC Radio 4 and BBC Sounds, this is The New Gurus, a series about looking for enlightenment in the digital world. You know who uh, holds gurus to account? Reality does. Other gurus do. Right? Regular blokes. 
<laughs> not not just uh, the BBC, not just journalists, right? Reality is the ultimate boss. If you're dishing out something that's poisonous, that will get revealed. If you're a fraud, that will get revealed. So you may be thriving in one situation and then absolutely fall apart in a different situation. If uh, people are interested in COVID vaccine safety, I've posted some links from the CDC, from nature.com, etc. Just uh, consult the video description if you want more on that. But uh, I don't think that until Helen Lewis at the the BBC came along that uh, gurus were just running wild. Episode 6, Day Gamers and Day Dreamers. Before we come back to... And I have played excerpts from this Helen Lewis, the new gurus series before, but I haven't played these particular excerpts. Have I dreamed and schemed about being a guru? I, like you and everybody else, likes to do what I am good at. And so when I see someone else doing something and I think, oh, I could do that better than they, then I, I do it. So I like uh, analyzing the news. I like analyzing books and ideas. And frequently I listen to other people doing this analysis and I think, oh, I could do that better. And so then I go do a, a show. So the the concept of guru is entertaining for me. It's It's interesting to me, but I just experience this as doing something that I'm good at. Like some people like to play chess in their spare time. Other people like to work with animals. Other people like to paint flowers. Like I like to discuss and critique ideas. Tom Torero, there's a bit of background you need to make sense of his story. Here's the thing. I think gurus flourish when old certainties are dissolving and the present feels anxious and new. That certainly applies to the world of dating. Over the 20th century, feminism... So guru is just just a, a phrase, that, a, a description, a title that you're, you're putting on, on something. So people have always looked for expertise from others, right? People were doing that 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. So I'm not sure that it's uh, all that new. ...has brought women greater independence political, social, economic. And as a result, we are bringing different expectations to our relationships. All right, let me just cut to the chase, ma'am. Uh, you can feel like what you want to, but women like you die alone. Straight up. Because you think you're better than the men that you qualify for. Kevin Samuels was a dating guru, a product of the eternal battle of the sexes and the democratizing power of YouTube. He had 1.4 million subscribers there. His particular niche was talking to black women over 35, telling them, essentially, to lower their expectations. I'm giving you advice, but you're not taking it. The advice is, ma'am, ma'am, you're average looking at best. And now you're asking for a man who's in the top 10% of men. You don't qualify for one. Kevin's approach was brusque, but he had plenty of devoted followers willing to defend him. Melanie King is also a YouTuber, and she was his protege. You go on TikTok, and just in general, women are think dating's trash. It's gotten worse. And it's usually to say, well, because all these men are doing wrong, all these men are this way, all these men are this way. And men really haven't had an outlet or anyone that even tries 
So I just had an additional thought here about uh, Elliot Blatt's comment. Uh, Luke, do you dream and scheme about being a guru? Well, I think you get to hear and, and you get to see what I dream and scheme about. I dream and scheme about ideas, the news, books, right? I, I don't dream and scheme about marketing myself. I don't dream and scheme about marketing the show. I dream and scheme about analyzing ideas, analyzing trends in the world around me, analyzing relationships, analyzing individuals, analyzing myself, analyzing religion, and listening to other people analyze these things. And when I think I can do something better, right, then it, it uh, drives me to do a show. So what I dream about, what I scheme about, how I spend my spare time, like how I operate in the real world, it all gets synthesized and put out in these streams. Are any notable 12-step figures considered gurus? Possibly. So there are circuit speakers in, in various 12-step programs, and some speakers have you know, something of a following. But generally speaking, 12-step uh, circuit speakers, they, they only get their expenses paid. So there isn't the financial consideration as, as in, you know, these other gurus who have uh, big Patreon. So I don't know any 12-step circuit speaker who has a Patreon who is soliciting donations. Uh, there, are, there are individuals who do, who do podcasts about the 12 steps, who do solicit donations. Uh, but uh, as for the individual 12-step programs, they all refuse to take money to invest my knowledge from anyone who's outside of the program, and they are put limits on the amount of money that you can give to the program. So they're about the only nonprofits of which I'm aware who don't necessarily want your money and who limit how much money you can give. And this is to limit the opportunities for, for squabbling and fighting over money and prestige. So yeah, there are probably some low key, you know, 12 step uh, circuit speakers. Isn't the use of the word guru coded language to characterize someone with non left wing opinions? Yeah, it's, Maybe not just uh, non-left-wing opinions, but someone outside the, the mainstream, someone outside of an institution. To understand them. Melanie saw Kevin's ultra-tough love as a political act, a response to a brand of feminism which had led women to make bad decisions. Here's how Kevin explained it on the podcast Fresh and Fit. So when I listen to something that I think is stupid, like I want to respond, right? So that's why I don't think we have to worry about, uh, you know, a lack of accountability for gurus, for, for pundits, for, for live streamers, for anyone else. This whole genre is largely built around response. I'm doing a response right now. I play excerpts from other people's shows and, and I comment on them. Because when you hear something that you think is wrong or being, let's say, economical with the truth, all right, the natural human instinct is to say, hey, you know, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Right? I've got something smarter, sharper, more clear to say. You are the most free, most liberated group of women that ever existed on the human history, and yet you're the most unhappy. One in four out of you on some sort of psych med. I knew his passion to build families. He felt like that was the way the community could build back. Because there's a lot of brokenness in the black community, and I, it's rooted in 
we're not building families. We're not getting married. What you saw with Kevin Samuels is our avatar. Dennis Sperling was another friend of Kevin's and another YouTuber working in defense of men. All men around the world are saying, you know what? The juice is not worth the squeeze. We're never good enough. We work ourselves to death. We keep the society going. We build the roads, fight the stupid wars. So what's the point? The narrative pushed to us most often is that a guy wants a woman with a big ass. He wants, you know, a thick lady. Accountability, always... Accountability is kryptonite to modern women. This is what he did. He set some standards. He let women know. And Russell Chappell had said this is a result of a lack of community. Yeah, it, it's been part of the, the human condition for, for navigating life, which is frequently difficult and painful to seek advice and expertise from other people. If you don't have such people in your real life, then you'll naturally seek them online. So often there's something that I can't figure out, like a machine that doesn't work right or trying to figure out software. Uh, I'll go on YouTube, look for an instructional video. So if you can get the help from someone in your real life, you may reach out to them. Otherwise, you may uh, seek uh, a guru. You're not good enough for a high-value man. Instead of us being told that every woman is a queen and a princess and you should be lucky to be able to smell her farts and, and drink her bath water, you scummy man. No, you deserve more. Dennis certainly has a piquant turn of phrase. We'll come back to his friend Kevin Samuels and the cultural shift he represents later. But first, let's add technology to this story. Dating apps, and before that, dating websites, reduce their users to a list of attributes non-smoker, slim, high earner, young, in a way that can feel pretty brutal. Oh, as unlike real life, right? In real life, we, we, we don't reduce people to attributes. In real life, dating and attraction and mating isn't uh, brutal, right? Apps are reflecting real life. Right? That, that's the primary thing that's going on with, with dating apps. They're not distorting and warping and polluting and degrading what is otherwise a harmonious and, and comfortable set of interactions. And if you don't like one person, there's someone else just to swipe away. I do continue to see as an, a, a male host, as an audience of women, I, and I talk to men, I see the frustration brewing and building and, and the gap between the genders only getting wider, not coming together. Nick Fial was dumped on television twice. He was a contestant on the U.S. dating show, The Bachelorette. There's been a lot of ups and downs. And I've also had my heart broken twice a year. And I am terrified that will happen again. Now he's a dating guru with more than a million followers on Instagram and a book called Don't Text Your Ex Happy Birthday. He tries to be a guru with a positive message for men cast adrift by this new dating landscape. Whatever you're feeling in the moment, if you go to the internet, and by the internet I mean like TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is, it's, it's literally designed to keep you there. It wants to keep you hooked. As a heterosexual man, it's pretty easy to find other men saying, you've tried, you're working hard, you know, the other gender sucks and things like that. Now, this is how I see it. That's good analysis. Whatever you're looking for, you will find that which you worship and admire, you start to become like. So, yeah, you can get information and gurus and teachers and magazine articles and books and churches and synagogues to reflect back to you your view of life. Nick Fayal represents one popular approach to the new dynamics of the modern dating market. Sure, it's hard out there, but don't let bitterness consume you. 
What's up, boys and girls? It's Tom Torero on the road on the. So dating seems to be one of those rare things in life. I notice that people tend to get worse at as they do more of it. The the more people date, the more cynical and uh, I don't know, just hardened that they, they become. There aren't many things in life that you seem to get worse at the more you do it. M4 from Tom Torero represented another darker view. He wanted men to turn the tables. Women were marks, targets, objects. And you could learn the cheat codes to get in their underwear from listening to his podcast and taking his courses. Tom Torero. Yeah, you could get, you could get uh, effective tips for, for, for doing this, but you're only going to be successful with women who are as equally damaged as, as you are. Right, a quality woman is not going to be seduced by these pickup texts. A street hustler talking about a woman's ovulation window. It's a secret window for most men because, for good biological reasons, women have to hide when they're at their peak ovulation, peak testosterone, peak sex drive per month to keep guys around. So guys Tom Torero, like Kevin Samuels, was part of a loose collection of anti-feminist gurus usually called the manosphere. She's probably chosen that day or for those few days to wear tighter, more revealing clothes. She's giving off AIs, it's called in the community, approach invitations or IOIs, indicator of interest. I've been writing about feminism for more than a decade, so I guess I've had more encounters with them than most people. Some are well-meaning, some are, in my mind at least, misguided, but harmless. And some are pretty toxic. When Tom Torero arrived at Oxford University in the late 90s... Toxic is one of those words when you can't be more precise, when you're unable to spell out exactly why, you know, someone is so terrible or some discourse is so horrible. If you can't make a case, then, then you relapse to a euphemism like toxic. In the 1990s, having grown up in the Welsh town of Penarth, he was a quiet geek who played percussion and wore cagoules. He also had a different name. Tom Ralish. I first met him at a university chorus rehearsal and I was singing alto and Tom was singing bass standing quite close behind me. What was your first impression of him? Um, he was quite tall and quite gawky. He had a kind of lopsided... Wow, this is interesting story I just learned from the chat. Uh, is, this, is this true? ESPN and Holly Rowe have filed charges against Kentucky coach John Calipari for his inappropriate touching of Rowe during the halftime interview at the Tennessee game. A warrant has been issued by Knoxville PD. Uh, is this is this real? Okay, uh, who's reporting this? Yeah, I, I don't know if this is real, but what the hell? Let's uh, let's see. Hold on. Many times. Did we miss three wide open shots? We did. We did. That's why we were down 8-0. Not what we're running and all that. And then you get in a huddle and say, we're all right. You just missed open shots. Just keep playing. The whole point of this is defense. And wait a minute. When they throw you to the floor and do that, you got to hold your ground. When you get a bloody mouth, you probably didn't do it to yourself. This is a roughhouse game. I got that kind of... Okay, I'm skeptical that any police charges have been filed on this. I'm careful about, about showing more of the clip, uh, but 
for copyright reasons, but uh, we'll keep an eye on the story. I did grin and was sort of cheery and chirpy and wanted to make people laugh. This is Tom's ex-wife. Let's call her Elizabeth, because she doesn't want her ex-husband's fans to find her. Elizabeth was a music student, and by her own admission, she'd led a sheltered life. Her father was a Greek Orthodox priest, and she was Orthodox too. How funny, Tom Ralish told her. I'm interested in the Greek Orthodox faith. When I met Tom, he assured me that he wasn't interested in me as a girlfriend. He just wanted to be friends. He had a growing interest in Orthodox Christianity at that time. So he kind of weaseled his way in. Remember Half Galician, he'd talk in the chat about uh, how he was in Central Europe. He'd, he'd tell the women how interested he was in like Hungarian culture or whatever the, the culture was of, of their country as a, as a way to try to weasel his way in. I mean, Men do this, right? We, we, I've often pretended to be interested in things women were interested in, that solely to have an opportunity with the woman. So this is pretty, pretty common. Right? Women have been known also to pretend to have interest in things that men are interested in to try to connect with the man, right? And then, for both sexes, this usually ends shortly after marriage. But uh, I'm thinking about one couple where the woman pretended to be particularly interested in sports and in tennis. Since they got married, she had uh, all pretense of interest in those things. By sharing this love of the, like, the aesthetic beauty of orthodoxy and of the music and the iconography and the ceremony and so on. In her first year at university, something terrible happened to Elizabeth's father. He had a brain hemorrhage while driving. He crashed. So I remember there's this woman that I was uh, seeking to make inroads with, and then she got robbed. Like her her apartment got broken into, and you know stuff was a lot of her stuff was stolen. She got hysterical, and then she invited me over and to, to stay with her. So again, very common human dynamic here. Men, generally speaking, you know want a beautiful woman to to treasure and to hold and to have sex with. Women want to be protected and provided for. His car and ended up in intensive care, where his recovery was slow and scary. Tom Ralish was there for Elizabeth. He was at my door in the private halls of residence. He'd just turn up, having got in somehow, ostensibly to... So you won't hear from his ex-wife any sense of, oh, maybe I was wrong, maybe I should have put up clearer boundaries, maybe I should have told him to get lost, maybe I should have filed a, a report that uh, uh, keep him away from her. No, it's all, it's all Tom's fault. Like, Tom took advantage of my kindness, right? This is a very familiar trope by people who don't want to take responsibility for their own role and their own troubles, right? She could have cut him off at the knees at any point. She chose not to because he was meeting her needs. Uh, be helpful and be kind and thoughtful, like bringing me tea bags biscuits and he said actually no he did want to be with me romantically he loved me he couldn't be without me and he would make himself disappear if I wouldn't be with him he would disappear and the way that he talked about it there was a kind of threat of of suicide that he would that he would kill himself if I 
wouldn't be with him. So we all exert a force field. We attract and repel people into our life. And she attracted this very troubled man who does end up committing suicide. So why does she attract, you know, suicidal, dysfunctional men? That might be something she wants to consider. Mm. So Elizabeth said, yes, I'll be your girlfriend. But strange things kept happening called me late one night and said, um, oh, I've, I've won a holiday to Greece. Come with me. Strange things keep happening that she goes for, that she appreciates, that she likes, that meet some need in her because she is as equally screwed up as this guy, right? It's not like we can date and mate and relate to people who are considerably more or less mature than we are. And I went with him <laughs> and it was clearly wasn't that he'd won it. He just wanted me not to be able to say no. Soon, Tom proposed marriage. But Elizabeth knew something wasn't right about their relationship. Even then, Tom said he was tracking her phone. He cut her off from her friends. Yeah, and she chooses to stay with him, right? So this, is, this in large part, is on her. She chooses to marry a creep. He threw up the day before the wedding. And but then she he still... asked her to move to Greece permanently, to the island of Crete. She could... Okay, so we're told that she threw up before the wedding. That's what she's saying now. But she chose to go through with it. Teach English. And so in the October of that year, we moved out there. And by this stage, he had converted to Orthodox Christianity. And he started wearing what all the, the young guys who wanted to become priests wore which was they wear a black shirt black clothes and it became more and more extreme to the point where he went to Mount Athos when Tom Rallish returned from the monks of Mount Athos he had surprising news for his wife he wanted to take holy orders it was my my way out I told Tom that I was leaving and it was quite scary because he well first I came back to the flat to find that he'd just completely cleaned everything up and he'd got flowers and bought food. I don't find it bewildering that this Tom guy went from wanting to be a priest and then became a pickup artist. We're all looking for what we do well at. We're all looking for where we excel, right? We enjoy what we do well. We enjoy what we excel at. We don't tend to like those things that we struggle over and are awkward for us. So if Tom could have been a star as a priest, he would have become a priest and been a star that way. He eventually decided against it. He chose another path to stardom, and that seemed to work for a while. But in the end, he got socially humiliated and, and took his own life. But uh, it's nothing bizarre that uh, gurus you know, cast around for, for different topics. So the libs of TikTok woman, she had you know, other social media that didn't take off. She finally found something that uh, garnered enormous audience. And so she chose to specialize in what she does well. It's just part of being human. And with sort of sunshine and rainbows and don't go. And that was really out of character. And then it really quickly descended from that to him not letting me leave the flat. And I, I climbed out of a window and went to the nuns at the convent. Okay, so the type of bloke who won't let you leave the, the flat, it doesn't start there, right? It becomes, 
you know, it starts with something more innocuous but inappropriate. It, if you're still attracted to that kind of person who's placing all these artificial constraints on you, then that says a great deal about you, all right? She was attracted to this type of bloke. So if you allow a, a woman to hit you, right, she's not going to just hit you once. She's going to escalate, escalate if you allow a woman to you know, treat you badly or you allow anyone to treat you badly. They will tend to just escalate over time. You either get out of the situation or you stop this type of interaction and you should figure out like why you were so attracted to this type of situation or this this person in the first place. But you don't get any introspection from Tom's ex-wife here. There's nothing she did wrong. She's just a helpless victim. Who basically sheltered me for the day or so before I could get a ferry away from Crete. I know, it's like something out of a Hollywood movie. Nuns climbing out of the window, escaping on a ferry. But Tom himself wrote about the marriage in one of his books, and the way he described it was equally tempestuous. And Elizabeth had confirmed her identity to me. She'd showed me their wedding certificate and their divorce papers. Yeah, I think he was very conflicted in what he wanted. And I think he was really drawn to... Oh, he was conflicted in what he wanted. Right? You were conflicted in, in what you wanted. All right? This, this, this narrative where all the problems are on his end and this is just an innocent maiden who's just a victim is is unfulfilling to me. It's shallow. Priesthood or monasticism. He's drawn to the role, that role of being wise and respected. And he wanted to be a guru, didn't he? That was part of his life plan. I think he was very drawn to figures of that kind, yeah. We all want to be happy. We all want to do things that we're good at. And if by you know, being a guru... You find something that you're good at and you get strokes and you get rewards and you get money, then you're going to do that. You get more strokes, reward and money from being a manager, right? You'll do that, right? We all go to where the sunshine of love and support, reward, money, attention, possibly fame, right? Social status, right? We all orient towards that which will give us more status and we all orient towards doing that which we are good at. It's, uh, it's not so mysterious. He kind of hero-worshipped a few figures. Um, for a while, Richard Dawkins, Tom was studying biology, but he eventually became kind of disillusioned with science and rationalism, and he used to really gloat about an interview he'd had with Richard Dawkins in which Tom had stalked out, having kind of informed Richard Dawkins that he was really barking up the wrong tree. And the woman relaying this narrative, right? There's never been a time where she has said things to indicate that she's better than someone else. She's, you know, never tried to one-up anyone in her life. This is just some, you know, highly unusual uh, way of being for, for a human being. Normally people don't try to one-up others. Normally human beings, you know, aren't judging whether they're better or worse than others. Come on, this is just all part of being human. It's not something distinctively creepy that uh, Tom engages in. We all think in terms of where do we stack up against other people? Where are we better than them? Where are we worse than them? Where can we learn from them? Where should other people be learning from us? And I think Tom really believed, you know, that he was smarter than these people. He thought he was smarter than everybody and that he deserved to be listened to. This detail made me blink a little. 
Remember James Lindsay, our anti-woke warrior from the last episode? He started out in the 2000s as a new atheist, a disciple of Richard Dawkins. But now, he's a cultural conservative who takes funding from Christian nationalists. I wonder if some people become gurus because they start with a need, a need to show they're smart, a need to be listened to, a need to be validated. And the shape their gurudom takes is kind of arbitrary. They try on ideologies like the rest of us try on jackets. And she's saying this like it's some um, you know, amazing insight. Yeah, it's just all part of being human. Right? We all do this without regard to being a guru or not. I mean, come on, did, did Black Lives Matter to you, Karen? To you? Do Black Lives Matter to you? Do Black Lives Matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking cussy ass bitch! Oh yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until Black Lives Matter! Until Black Lives Matter, no life matters! That is not our fight! Until Black Lives means something to this country! No. No. Right, she's just trying to show here that she's morally superior to other people. Right? It's just normal, natural, and at times healthy human dynamic. Until black Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Right? So she's on this crusade, Black Lives Matter, because she thinks it makes her superior to other people. She wants to instruct them. Until they find the one that fits them best. They think about the relationships that that he had with all the people that we knew. He he played them all. An acquaintance had wrote to me back at the time and said, Tom bamboozled us all. That's one thing I think it's interesting about you saying about him wanting to be a, a priest. Because then I think you kind of say priest plus internet equals guru. Disaster. Well, yeah, yeah disaster first. <laughs> After the divorce came through, Tom receded from Elizabeth's life. Occasionally she would search for him online, mostly to reassure herself she wasn't going to bump into him. One of those times, however, she found that Tom Ralish, the wannabe monk, had disappeared, just like he had always threatened. In his place was Tom Torero, the sex-mad day-game guru with a YouTube channel and a backstory about female rejection. Because I had had this area of my life lacking in terms of socialising, chatting to girls, making girls laugh, then getting them back to my house and then sleeping with them. I was so excited that I was just so driven. It was a new world for me. Many of his targets were from Eastern Europe. He liked to travel there, and he even wrote a book focusing on the region. For my type, I like Slavic girls, so surprise, surprise, I like going to Russia, Belarus, the Ukraine, former Soviet Union countries like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia... A lot of Tom Torero's content has been wiped from the internet. But if you look on unregulated messenger apps, you can still find it. He wasn't content with just telling young men how to be masters of day game. He wanted them to see him in action. Victoria Secret. A lingerie store, you can choose any lingerie store. Tom covertly recorded his conquests. 
and he didn't stop at the bedroom door. Men are simple, you know, you press A, press B, or press C, you know. I spoke to one of the women he treated like this. He told her he was travelling around Europe in a van, and he convinced her into having sex with him. She didn't want her voice to be used, but she told me that she now feels she was young and naive. It's hard to trust men after this experience, she said. But I also got other emails from men who thought Tom was a nice guy, someone who gave advice to shy, awkward romantics whose only crime was to be born male. Here's what one man wrote to me. My own story is a simple one. Too shy and introverted, went to an all-boys school, and I was simply looking for a way to gain confidence with the opposite sex. I'm sure you'll find that many men who are attracted to this industry are decent guys, simply looking for a girlfriend. And he does try and tell the story of your marriage in, in one of his books. Does he? In Day Game, the way he presents it is he met you and you were much more sexually experienced than him and he was very naive. But it puts him in the passive role, doesn't it? Which is what I see when I see a lot of his content about his relationships with women in his early phase. It's about women have all the power in relationships. So I think that's the story that he, he told. And the right wing does this, all right? That uh, the left does all these horrible things and then the right just passively you know, is forced to respond the left wing does this, the right does all these horrible things, and then the left you know, just passively responds. This is very human reaction, right, to just put our, our own side in, in the passive voice, and then there are all these horrible people you know, acting on us, forcing us to do things that we don't want to do. told himself about your relationship. A few traces of Tom Torreira remain on the open internet, and one of them is the article which his fans think brought his life crashing down. It was late 2021. Tom's podcast had gone quiet. There were rumours he'd found a girlfriend, become a ski instructor. And then a journalist at Newsweek broke the story of his day game undercover tapes, the secret recordings of his sexual encounters. Soon after, Tom Ralish killed himself. The depression certainly is a fog. Or when I describe it to, to people, I've said it's like a, a bell jar where everything sounds like I'm underwater and I can see what's going on, but I'm not participating in it. And I had that feeling since I was a child, that I'm watching life go by, but I'm not in life. How did you find out about his death? I got a text message from an acquaintance. I don't think he remembered that we were married, but he texted me and asked, had I heard about Tom and... Um, and he told me that he'd taken his own life and and then we spoke. I called him and we spoke. Um, and how did you feel about it? How did it make you feel? I mean, I felt... I felt so sad that he'd come to that. I felt so sorry that, that that's where he'd come to, that he felt he had no other way... I couldn't help but also feel relieved that I don't have to be afraid of bumping into him anymore. I don't have to be afraid of seeing him. I mean, it's I've had nightmares about him for years. The news of Tom Torero's death caused an outpouring of grief across the day game community. His fans blamed the Newsweek article. The legendary PUA has died. He's killed himself. This guy lost all of his income because of a hit piece written by a journalist. The difference is, 
The media loves tarring all men's dating coaches with the same dirty brush. There were wild rumours that it was all a fake-out, that Tom Torero, in one final act of daring, had escaped the public shaming handed out by Newsweek, by a journalist from the mainstream media, by a woman, maybe even a feminist. While making this programme, a couple of Tom's fans have emailed me, describing the Newsweek article as a hit job. The attacks on the journalist who wrote that piece were fierce and personal. Like many of the communities we've explored in this series, the Manosphere is deeply mistrustful of the mainstream media. When I first found out online what Tom was doing, it really struck me that his day game approach is essentially like a short-form version of what he'd done with me over two or three years. He'd somehow realised, oh, I actually have these manipulative powers. Wait, wait, wait. She's using the, the passive voice now, what, what he'd done with me, all right? So, so now she's happy to use the passive voice. She's, she's the, the victim now. This is something I can do. And then he goes on to hone and condense that skill down to not even 24 hours, but I don't know, a number of hours as a game to dominate young women. I find this chilling. As if Elizabeth was... practice. Tom started out charming and controlling one person. And then he started doing the same thing via the internet to thousands of fans. A parasocial relationship. Of course, that's not how Tom Torero's followers saw it. They saw a man who was standing up for them as men. Remember Kevin Samuels and his tough advice for older black women? The same goes for him. To me, Kevin's rhetoric sounds cruel and hurtful. You can have all the self-worth in the world, but a man still has to pick you, right? If men don't want overweight women, how are you going to get picked? But his friends saw a man who wanted to help his community. I referred to him as the last prophet for the black community. Here's Dennis Sperling. In black America, we have a less than replacement level reproduction rate. Black American men, they don't find women marriageable. So they're not marrying them. They'd rather be alone. They'd rather die alone. They'd rather get a dog than get married. In May this year, Kevin Samuels died alone. More wild rumours. He was at a hotel. There was a woman there. But when the coroner's report came back, it emerged he had died at home in Atlanta, Georgia, from high blood pressure. Natural causes. He was only 53. He was talking about what he wanted to do, his vision and his dreams of what he all these things and, and work, work, work. That's Melanie King again. She says that even in the company of close friends, Kevin Samuels never seemed to be totally relaxed. And I actually stopped and I asked him, I was just like, like, what do you want to do for fun? He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll take a rest soon. And lo and behold, I mean, it was like near, you know, a little bit over a month later he passed. That is Kevin's tragedy and the tragedy of so many gurus hooked on giving advice, on their mission to change the world. They don't seem to be able to quit online fame, no matter how much pain and anxiety it causes them. And what about their followers? Something as important as finding love will always make us feel vulnerable and prone to putting our faith in someone who promises that they have all the answers. Add to that the sheer rate of change brought about by successive waves of feminism and by the new technology of dating apps... It is brutal out there. 
That's the climate in which Tom Rallish went looking for a myth to weave about himself. And he found eager disciples willing to hear him tell it over and over again in basements, on podcasts, in books. Women overlook nice guys, so why be a nice guy? It was a myth that made sense of his own life, his own vulnerability, his own shortcomings. It was a myth that made him powerful. It remade Tom Ralish, the shy, spotty geek, into Tom Torero, the guru of day game. Of course, I still enjoy uh, sleeping with hotter, younger girls. But once you get what you think you wanted, you realise that you were actually, as I say, seducing yourself. And if there's anyone listening to this who is, as you were, under the spell of a kind of charismatic but controlling person, a kind of their own personal bad guru, what advice would you give them? What would you say to them? Yeah, I guess just to be careful and and examine what is going on with the people who purport to care for you. Yeah, she wants to keep all the emphasis on the other party. Well, how about examining why you attract these type of people? Why do you need them in your life? What what are they giving to you? So here's uh, Tom Torero, day game. I had to teach myself, day game. I had to come from a place that was very, very nervous, very, very shy, very, very geeky, very, very unsociable. It was a, quite a painful process, two, three years of going out onto the street pretty much every day speaking to strangers first indirectly and then directly, as Sasha was talking about. So racking up this confidence, racking up my success with women, and generally becoming more alive. And this quote sums it up. This is a quote that I had pinned to my bedroom wall for three years. People say what we're seeking is a meaningful life. I don't think this is what we're really seeking. I think what we're seeking is an experience of being alive. Because if you accept, like me, that life really has no meaning in terms of somebody dictating a meaning, then life can mean whatever you want it to mean. But that causes the problem that we need to feel it. We need to be alive. We need to decide what our purpose is, and then we need to feel it. We need to be in the moment. And this man defined it. He didn't define it in a kind of a Californian way, a yoga way, just be in the moment, baby way. He's a scientist. He's a professor of psychology in America. He comes from Hungary. And to say his surname, you need to be in the moment anyway. <laughs> Anybody want to give it a go? Anybody know who this man is? Anybody heard of this man? Michal Grace. We've got a couple. Professor Michal Csikszentmihalyi. You can just remember it as Chicks Send Me High, which is also true. Chicks Send Me High. And he wrote the definitive work about 30 years ago, and he called it Flow, the work on how to achieve happiness. So he defined this state that we feel. Now, before we kind of unpick it, I just want to know a few people's passions, okay? Because we all have glimpsed flow. Some of us are better than others at flow. And to, to start, we need to think, when do we feel most in the groove, in the moment? So has anybody got a real passion? A real passion where you kind of... You pretty much dedicate your life to it, or you feel completely free in that moment. What's your passion? Yeah, roaming Mike? I mean, my passion really is to actually be successful in business and, you know, always have a very social life, preferably with loads of women around me. Sure. And, you know, at the moment it's complete opposite, but that is really what I'm aiming for, and it is a goal I'm trying to achieve. But it's, you know, just okay, awesome. lack of uh, motivation from preventing me, really. Okay, this could really help, okay, because it's going to define what motivation is. So business, women, activities are not always pleasant to do, but when you look back on them, they give you ultimate happiness and satisfaction. Certainly for climbing, it's very, very painful. High altitude climbing, it's fucking horrible when you're actually doing it, but when you look back at it, you just feel that pride forever. Musicians always describe this feeling of free flow. Top musicians especially, they're lost in the moment. Better than drugs, better than sex, ultimate happiness. Like I said, I'm a primary school teacher by training. I've taught kids for 10 years. And kids are lucky bastards because they just exist in flow. Flow is most apparent when you're about four, five, six years old. 
Yeah, so men who are players, men who are good with women, also tend to be very good with children, right? The same sort of you know, playful attitude that uh, helps helps adults get along with children also helps them with picking up women. When you don't look back and you don't look forwards, kids are just high. Kids are so fucking lucky. And I was lucky enough to spend my time with kids and feel a little bit of that natural high. So if you want a natural high, become a primary school teacher. Not a secondary school teacher, you'll get hormonal kids. But um, primary school teaching and things like art, artists always describe this feeling of being in the moment, top artists. They lose track of time, they don't eat, they don't go to the toilet. Somebody said when uh, Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, he just existed in a state of awe for up to weeks on end. Writing, business can get you into this flow state. So let's define it even more, because it's still woolly. You're still thinking, well, yeah, but how do I get it? How can I cultivate it? In the Day Game House, we've been watching some cool documentaries recently. And each of these documentaries shows flow. Hands up if you've seen King of Kong. Anybody seen it? It's an awesome documentary that Mark recommended to me, Mark from Day Game, about these nerds, ultra nerds in the States, who compete at Donkey Kong. Sounds proper nerdy. It is proper nerdy, but you watch these guys in their garage all night trying to get to the next level of Donkey Kong. You see the exhilaration and the exultation on their little faces. And they exist in flow. You know, if we accept that life has no meaning, well, for those guys, that is the meaning. They're completely happy. They're completely satisfied with Donkey Kong. You know, we can laugh at them, but just watch the documentary, watch their faces. Even cooler, even more masculine, you could say, is a documentary on motorbike riding in the Isle of Man. Anybody seen that one on the right? TT motorbike racing. About guys that just Okay, here's a little bit from the Newsweek magazine article uh, exposing this uh, guy. Pickup artist Tom Torero sold sex recordings, targeted teen girls using major tech firms. Leaked material from behind the paywall of a prominent British pickup artist website appears to show that he secretly recorded himself having sex with women, content he offered to men who paid for his coaching courses, a business that relied on major tech companies. Tom Torero, whose real name is Tom Rollies, a former elementary school teacher from a Catholic family in Wales, made a career of using calculated tactics common in the pickup industry to lure women into bed. Raleigh's, who is in his early 40s, surreptitiously recorded his interactions with multiple women. Sometimes, he has recorded the audio of sexual intercourse. He packaged these recordings with commentary from men who paid for access to his Black Sheep Bandit website's vault. Not once do the women in the footage viewed by Newsweek acknowledge that they are being recorded. Raleigh's, however, occasionally addresses the listener when his companions are not around. Among his content is Raleigh's talking about targeting teenage girls for their sexual inexperience because they are the most adventurous. In a video obtained by Newsweek, Raleigh's filmed his pursuit of a 17-year-old girl in Poland, whom he emphasized was a virgin before he slept with her. In a podcast episode, Raleigh's also described one of his course products as 17 hours of me in 2016 picking up virgins, late teen girls, beautiful girls as a 36-year-old guy. So that sums up what's possible in your 30s. As Tom Torero, Raleigh's was a globally renowned figure among London's day gamers, pickup artists, who is who target women in the daytime. He virtually disappeared from the internet starting in late 2020, leaving his male fans pining after him ever since. But throughout his absence, Raleigh's Black Sheep Bandit website has continued to offer a trove of pickup coaching content behind a paywall. Among the course packages available was Hustler Pro, valued at $299. It includes the Stealth Seduction Program, which promises 27 videos of Tom Infield around the globe, totaling over 12 hours of content. The sexual content suggests Raleigh's has been in breach of the terms and conditions of the tech companies he has used to keep Black Sheep Bandit in business for years, including YouTube, Stripe, Amazon, PayPal, MailChimp, and Kajabi. After Newsweek contacted them, some of these companies have deactivated Raleigh's accounts, and following outreach by Newsweek on Tuesday, it appears Raleigh's has worked to purge his own online presence, deleting content and taking down accounts. Newsweek recently uncovered the lucrative enterprise of Las Vegas pickup artist Mike K., who, with his students, 
contrived situations to coax women out of nightclubs for sex. K filmed some of the sexual encounters apparently without the women's knowledge and used the footage to promote his coaching business. His accounts with various social platforms and tech service providers were subsequently terminated as a result of the investigation. Pickup artists are self-professed dating coaches who teach men how to get women to have sex with them. They promote coercive, deceptive and manipulative techniques, as well as pseudoscience of the female mind and behavior. As such, the pickup community has drawn accusations of encouraging misogyny, harassment, emotional abuse, and sexual assault. They formed an underground seduction community until journalist Neil Strauss' 2005 book The Game, widely regarded as a PUA Bible, popularized the practice. PUAs have since integrated into the Manosphere, an online conglomerate of fringe masculinist groups that endorse misogyny and revile feminism. Manosphere communities include incels, involuntary celibates, and MGTOW, men going their own way, as some more extreme adherents have perpetrated real-life deadly attacks, Menosphere groups have faced widespread ire and online deplatforming. In 2019, a BBC Panorama investigation into PUA methods rattled the pickup community and led YouTube to crack down on their channels. Stealth Seduction In stealth seduction audio footage obtained by Newsweek and dated as early as 2014, Tom Rawlies could be heard interacting with eight different women. These encounters spanned across North America and Europe. The women's backgrounds range from teenage college students to working professionals to a divorced mother of two. In a May 2016 YouTube video promoting stealth seduction, which was removed from the platform but viewed by Newsweek. Raleigh's himself refers to at least four of the women. Newsweek also obtained recordings of Raleigh's 2017 Day Game 3.0 seminar, during which the pool can be heard boasting to his male audience about the breadth of his stealth seduction content. No excuses, please don't email me and say, Tom, what do you do on a date? Raleigh said, cause there's 17 hours of- So I think Newsweek was absolutely right to publish this investigation. And if uh, Tom Torreira then commits suicide as a result of it, that's on him. Right, Newsweek simply held him accountable for the scummy things that he was doing. Me with 17 girls in, whatever, 16 countries. Yes, British. Yes, American. Yes, Canadian. Yes, in London. Yes, 17-year-olds, 18, 19, up to 30, 31, married. Yes, with boyfriends. Yes, Muslims, hardcore Christians. Yep, Asian. For stealth seduction, Raleigh's recorded multiple women from the moment he approached them in public places until he has had sex with them. In between, he deploys a slew of premeditated techniques to take the women back to his place. While the women's names tend to be muted, footage viewed by Newsweek suggests at least one woman's first name was not edited out. Raleigh's has also left in conversations during which his dates open up about their personal lives. In a PDF handbook offered with stealth seduction, a leaked version of which was viewed by Newsweek, Raleigh's describes the product's format as videos and audios of me day gaming and dating, along with subtitles and annotations. As he walked over to meet up with a 20-year-old French woman in London, he delivered introductory statements. The plan is to do my dating model, so a couple of venues, and then I'm going to do the one-day model, Raleigh said. So I'm going to take her back to the house for the plausibly deniable film, and run the train and then keep this recording so you can hear it all. Wish me luck, I'm about to go into the cafe now, he continued, before disclosing the woman's first name. Newsweek located a now-removed YouTube video of Raleigh's interaction with a French woman, which suggests he used to upload recorded sexual encounters to the video-sharing platform, while the YouTube video was audio only, Raleigh's added text commentary from an apparent reference to a concealed microphone, the squeakiness sick, is the mic in my jacket, not my leather shorts, the descriptions of what was occurring as he could be heard having sex with the woman. Throughout her time with Raleigh's, the young woman seemed enthusiastic. Yet at certain points in the video's commentary, Raleigh spoke of preemptively thwarting LMR, or last-minute resistance, a PUA term referring to women changing their minds close to sex. In a self-seduction video obtained by Newsweek, Raleigh's, apparently outfitted with a body camera, stopped a teenage girl in her tracks outside a shopping mall in Poland. The teenager told Raleigh she was a 17-year-old high school student within minutes of meeting him. Her face was blurred out and her name was muted. Raleigh's could be seen taking the girl on an i-date, instant date, at a coffee shop. During the interaction, the Pua asked if she was a party girl, took of noticing her legs, inquired about her love life, 
and pressed her on her alcohol preferences, the legal drinking age in Poland is 18 years old. In the video's annotations, he wrote about looking to bounce home and engaging in verbal bamboozling to keep her calm as he took the teenager to his apartment. Raleigh's attempted to escalate that day, but was not successful. After chronicling follow-up dates in the video's commentary and displaying screenshots of his flirtatious texts with the teenager, the poor reported eventually having had sex with her. The Stealth Seduction Handbook makes mention of this episode, specifying no lay audio is included as she is under 18 years old. However, the video featured texting which Raleigh's provided a play-by-play -play of their sexual encounter. At the conclusion of the video Raleigh's can be heard conversing with the girl about the intercourse they just had. The Stealth Seduction Handbook heavily emphasized the teenager's virginity. Raleigh's normally does not go on more than three dates with the same person, he stated, but a virgin is different. Teenage girls are often shy and inexperienced but the most adventurous, he wrote. In a Tom Torero podcast episode announcing stealth seduction, Raleigh stated he hoped his clients would progress your game so that the girls are younger and the girls are hotter. No need to hide behind saying you're in it for self-actualization or deep personal development, he said. No, that might happen as a byproduct, but you're in this to bang younger, hotter girls. And be proud of it. Own it. In a separate podcast episode, Raleigh stated the pinnacle of men's sexual market value is in their 30s, while that of women peaks between 16 and 21 years old. My peak year of day game, let's say for beauty results, efficiency, all of that, was 2016, when I was roughly 36 years old, he said. That's the year I was sleeping with 17-year-olds in Poland, legal, many 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, it was coming easier. He went on to promote stealth seduction to watch me during that magic year, hamster wheel spinning. On his podcast, Tom Rollies has advised secretly turning a woman's phone to silent while attempting to initiate sex, scarcely communicating to give her the gift of chasing you, hinting at future plans to falsely lead women to believe this is not a one-night stand, even leaving items such as stray hairs, earrings or wine glasses at home to trigger her imagination. The male brain is linear and it's logical, Raleigh's once said. Women no, 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 no. They like the blank spaces. They like filling in the gaps. They like these emotional roller coasters. They love drama because they love that hamster will spinning in their mind. During his day game 3.0 seminar, Raleigh similarly endorsed emotionally manipulative techniques. While broaching LMR, he advised that when hitting a brick wall with a woman who won't have sex, the man should abruptly end things there, show her the door and cut all communication. Some women, he said, will eventually return like a boomerang. At one point during the seminar, he spoke of wading into the dark world of making girls fall in love with you and then running away. Golden question on the date. Say to her, though your parents live together? If she says no, you've got a very high statistical chance. It's a sad thing, Raleigh said. Girls that were raised by their mothers without a father. They do crazy shit. He also discussed sparking conflict with women in order to render them dependent. It's a little bit dark, but if you create drama with a girl, you get amazing results, Raleigh's told his audience. Drama gives them a dopamine hit and then removes the dopamine. They literally get drug cravings. Real dark triad guys and pimps that we'll talk about. They really use drama and basically getting the girl addicted. Addicted so she can't leave you. We gotta talk about it cause these are techniques that I used. On his podcast, Raleigh's delved into the dark triad, a term in psychology used to describe the combined personality traits of narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy? So narcissism is extreme selfishness, you've got that crazy grandiose view of yourself, Raleigh said. You crave admiration, you're cocky, you're confident, you lead, you pull the trigger. This is all pure game, yeah? Machiavellianism is the definition of game. It means being manipulative, playing people very, very calibrated to human psychology. So you can be deceitful, you can exploit certain social situations. Raleigh has long spoken of struggles with chronic acne, depression, and anxiety throughout his youth. He studied biological sciences at Oxford University, where he said famed evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins was one of his lecturers. During his PUA career, Raleigh's has referred to himself as a biologist to substantiate his takes on women. He first picked up a copy of the game in 2005, as he pursued a vocation in teaching. While employed as a school teacher in London, he began moonlighting as a pickup artist. But Raleigh's did not keep his trades entirely separate. In his book Day Game, a leaked copy of which was viewed by Newsweek, 
he wrote about hooking up with female colleagues, a single mother, and a student's nanny. He eventually quit his teaching job in 2012 to join Daygame.com, a London-based PUA company. Rollies has not responded to Newsweek's request for comment. A wolf in a forest. Speaking into his recording device on his way to a date in Wales with a divorcee he had previously approached, Rollies talked in layman's terms. All right, first date. Day two in Cardiff with the Iranian MILF. Wish me luck, he told his listeners. Mentioning a term used to sexualize mothers. I've only got one night here, so we have to escalate fast and pull the trigger. Her kids are at home as well, he continued. So I've sorted logistics, got a venue one, got a venue two. Raleigh's comes prepared with two venues to take his dates to. The second must be conveniently located near his home or hotel. In the Stealth Seduction Handbook, he wrote about his successes in breaching his Iranian date's personal boundaries, as she was hesitant about kissing him or getting too close. In the first venue she opens up about cultural differences with her Muslim background and her inexperience with guys after getting divorced, he wrote. She's hesitant about drinking, and tells me she's not into casual sex. With a bit more spiking, I get her to admit that she had a one-night stand with a guy she met in Barcelona. This gives me the green light I need to escalate harder. In his day game 3.0 seminar, Raleigh spoke of taking it upon himself to start touching the women, using pretexts such as tall tales about the significance of each finger in ancient times or feigning curiosity about tattoos. If you get a green light like she pulls down her top to show you, that's it, he said. Uber, yeah. Compliance. Why are you still in the effing bar, yeah? Raleigh's also reported using women's hair to his advantage, I often say. Did you ever have your hair down to here? And then I touch her ass. Apua went on to speak of his trademark floppy test, which is conducted by pushing the woman around or pulling her in. At that moment, if she leans into you, if she goes floppy, if she's completely compliant, remember that magic thing we talked about? Compliance? Raleigh's could be heard saying, finish the date. You get a window, girls give you a window. It's like cooking a boiling water, sick, and you get about half an hour, you get about an hour's window, Max, he continued. You heat her up, you seal the deal. Raleigh's told his audience he used to lie to women about looking for a next venue when he intended on leading them home. He has since opted to seed conversational cues about his advantageously close residents, such as speaking of his guitar or offering up leftover alcohol. Several of the stealth seduction tapes reviewed by Newsweek do not simply end at intercourse with the women. Raleigh's could be heard discussing with some of them afterwards, prodding them about seeming nervous when he first approached them, or whether they prefer a bad guy to a good guy. In his day game 3.0 seminar, he referred to these conversations as interviews. Girls on the feedback front of Stealth Seduction, and you can hear the interviews in the product after. A lot of them said, when you approached me, I was nervous. It was like a wolf in a forest, Raleigh's told his male audience. And that is the best thing any girl could ever say to you. Disappearing act. After winding down his online presence in 2019, Raleigh's reincarnated his Black Sheep Bandit YouTube channel in January 2020 and announced some of his content was rendered exclusive to paying members. On a separate channel, he archived episodes of his Tom Torero podcast. Raleigh's also launched a Black Sheep Bandit podcast delivering life updates and PUA sermons to his followers. He spoke candidly of his financial struggles in a July 2020 episode, in part due to unspecified legal troubles over his online content. I lost a lot of money, a very complicated story last year, with the legal troubles over the YouTube content and other content, it cost me almost £10,000 in expenses, although I eventually won, Raleigh said. It's a long story about that debt, which is still ongoing. Following outreach by Newsweek, Raleigh's took down his Black Sheep Bandit YouTube channel and rid the Tom Torero podcast channel of all its content before the platform took any action. A YouTube spokesperson told Newsweek, YouTube has strong nudity and sexual content policies in place, which prohibits non-consensual sex acts or unwanted sexualization. In the first half of 2021, we removed over 316,000 videos in violation of these policies. On his Black Sheep Bandit website, Raleigh's offered a variety of coaching materials. His video vault which teases access to hundreds of hours of juicy video content that was removed from public platforms featured membership levels starting at $99. It is unclear which online services were used to host the stealth seduction package, which likely took the shape of video lessons. A disclaimer at the bottom of the Black Sheep Bandit vault stated the videos are streamable. 
The Black Sheep Bandit website used Kajabi, an online platform for knowledge-based businesses such as courses and coaching. Okay, I'll leave it there for now. Uh, Return my attention to the football game. The Jaguars are storming back. They're now within 10 points of the Chargers as we head into the fourth quarter. Bye-bye.